Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am super, super excited to be here with Jason Haheim, the principal timpanist of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Um, I came across Jason's work, I don't know how long ago, less than a year, but more than six months ago, um, about deliberate practice and just got, you know getting into his backstory of how he got into the Met and what he was doing before. It's just a very unique story, and I really identified with a lot of just his thoughts about what matters in our careers and how we improve and, and, and just his process of doing it. So I'm really fortunate he has the time right now to be able to speak to me this afternoon and speak to us and to teach us. So first of all, thank you so much, Jason, for being on the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks so much, man. I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. I've truly been looking forward to this ever since you got in touch with me. Ah, well, I am glad that, I mean, I would never have thought for a second that this would work out. But so when I did it on behalf of people who said, you should get Jason on the show. And so this is like, it, it worked out pretty well because I'm glad I that this worked out. So um, you can find this information on blog posts, but I think if you don't mind um, sort of just going through your history, uh, where you came from, how you got where you're going, uh, just to ground us a little bit before we get into the meat of the conversation. You got it, man. Um, yeah, so here, here's the really kind of quick overview. Um, I started playing piano in 1988, started playing percussion in fifth grade band, 1989. And I just sucked for a long, long time after that. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I was born in 1988. Oh, that's <laughs> well, to be fair, I was only nine years old in 1988. Wow. So we're not, yeah, not that much different, but yeah. So, so, so I was just like plunking around on my little like Casio keyboard. And then I got that, you know, like little, Remo drum pad and the sticks in, in fifth grade. And then honestly, for like the next seven or eight years, like nothing happened. Like I just wasn't applying myself at all. And this was a pattern that like continued throughout my, you know, in, into my adult life where I just wasn't a serious musician in, in any kind of way. I, I wasn't applying myself. I wasn't motivated. And, um, you know, frankly, any teacher you would have asked along the way, if they're like, Hey, is this kid going to end up, you know, as a principal tempest in the Metropolitan Opera someday? They would have laughed in your face. They were right. like, no, this kid's right. got no talent at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> and um, through, through a, a ranging series of twists and turns, which basically involved me going to a summer camp one time and like wanting to impress a girl because she asked me if I was going to go to Allstate Orchestra. And I lied and said yes. And I honestly had no idea what she was talking about. So then I went back, <laughs> found a percussion teacher, started taking lessons. Got to like that orchestra camp and realized, oh, I, I actually kind of love music. And so so then, you know, I had already been planning to do a physics major in college because my dad is, you know, he he grew up doing engineering and he taught high school physics. So, you know, I had this strong influence in my life um, and it seemed, you know, practical, if nothing else. Right. So, so I was doing a, this four year undergrad degree. That was a double major in physics and music, a uh, little college in Minnesota called Gustavus Adolphus College. Wow, um, yeah, cool. And, and, you know, frankly, that whole time I was, I was into music because I really loved it, but I had no sense that this could be a career. And part of that was because I was going to see 
you know, the Minnesota Orchestra at that time, back in the late 90s. I was watching Peter Kogan, you know, throw down on timpani. I was watching uh, Brian Mount and Kevin Watkins and Jason Arcus in the percussion section. And to me, these guys just seemed like gods, you know, <laughs> like I would watch what they're doing and it, and it was mind blowing to me. And I, I realized in retrospect, I was still kind of laboring under this false paradigm of innate talent, thinking that like, well, these guys are doing that because they were gifted sure. or, you know, whatever. And, and here's a little, I mean, I, I, I'm just like not even in that league. So I'm going to go and appreciate what they're doing, but I can't, I can't think of this. So, so that was basically why in spite of really loving music, you know, my senior year, I was applying to grad schools in, you know, science. Sure. So I eventually got into this PhD program at UC Santa Barbara, uh, doing electrical engineering and did that along the way, spent a summer at the Aspen music festival. Why again, just cause a friend was like, Hey, seems like this might be fun. And I was like, well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. They, they're talking about, about music festivals. I think they're talking about Lollapalooza or something. Yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah, cool, yeah. we're going to go in a tent and like watch Dave Matthews band or something. No, <laughs> nope. It was like making a CD with excerpts and, um, and again, like I got in, but I just squeaked by, you know, like I was not the strongest player in my Aspen class by any means. I, I still have that CD. I've listened back to it. It sucks. <laughs> it, would, <laughs> it would never get through today. You know, like the yeah. standards have just risen way too far since, well, that was 2002. So, but, but that was interesting because I started to see like, you know, when you spend time at a summer festival like that, you start to see these people off the stage and off the pedestal. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah, see, yeah. you see, you see people showing up to rehearsal in like t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops and like making mistakes, you know, right. and they're just people, just people. And that, so that was the first time I got this like idea that, oh, maybe, maybe I could sort of do this. And if nothing else, like when I got back to, to be working on my PhD, I was just like, you know, my heart is not in this. Like I'm, I'm reasonably good at this, but I just don't love it. And so at that point, I already had a job offer from this company in Chicago. Chicago was advantageous because of obviously Chicago Symphony. There's people there I could study with. But mainly I was looking at Civic because I was like, I still need places to play and like really like get into this. I need, I need experience. And so when I landed in Chicago, I sort of rededicated myself to seeking out people to study with. Um, trying to audition into civic, got cut, got cut, failed, got cut, finally got the associate position and then got a lucky break because the principal quit and I got upgraded. So I got to play a full season as principal tempest in civic. And then I won the audition outright after that. And I was like, okay, all right, this is kind of happening, but still like I had no idea what I was doing. I was, I started taking professional auditions. <laughs> I got, the first one I ever took was Cincinnati I didn't even get through the first excerpt and they said, thank you. Oh my gosh. I've never heard that ever happening. Oh my God. It was, it was embarrassing. <laughs> but the, here, here, what's even more embarrassing is I didn't know how embarrassing it was. I, I was so unaware yeah, right. of how inadequate my auditioning chops were <laughs> that I honestly asked the proctor like, well, wait, was that good? Were they stopping me? Because it was, that's all they, they already knew. They already knew. And he was like, <laughs> no. No, that's not what happened. Yeah, I've like I've done that to myself sometimes. Or if I get cut off early in a round or something, I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm one of those few people where they just knew that they're yeah, like, they just knew. you know what, this guy is so good, we don't have to hear. We got it. it. Yeah, we got it. You were so good, you didn't even make it through the first excerpt, and they knew you were the guy. You were it. 
It was shameful. So, so, you know, I, I was, I was playing in civic, but I had no idea what I was doing audition wise because basically I had no idea what I was doing. Like technically Mm -hmm. I had, I had all of these like musical ideas I wanted to get out there and I had no means to do it because my, my playing just wasn't at that level. I sought out uh, John Tafoya, who is the director of percussion at Indiana University. Great dude, tremendous timpanist. Um, we're, we're thankfully friends to this day. I was just talking to him last night. And so he, he was gracious enough to sort of take me under his wing. And he, after a couple of lessons, recommended I read this book. He said, yeah, I did this just came out. I read it. I think it would be right up your alley. And the book is called Talent is Overrated by the author Jeffrey Colvin. Mm-hmm. And this was probably the single most important book I've ever read in my life. And the reason for that is that it was the first mass market book that was bringing together about 30 years of psychology research into what the researchers had been calling deliberate practice. Notably, uh, the term was coined by Anders Ericsson. Mm-hmm. I'm going to mention that name probably a handful of times during this because he is this towering researcher in the field. We ended up collaborating. Um, Unfortunately, he passed away suddenly, unexpectedly back in June. So you knew him. Yeah. Yeah. And it it was a real bummer, man, because, I mean, we we actually had these research plans that that were ongoing, um, trying to, like, study more about deliberate practice and, and, like, implementations and everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And then we lost him. And uh-huh. it just, it, that sucked. But point being back, back to around 2008. Now I read, I read this book and it really started to change everything for me. Not because, you know, this one book was saying, here's how you pr- play timpani, but because I started to realize, oh, okay, there is this thing that basically unifies my seemingly sort of disparate, almost like schizophrenic identities as like scientist and musician. They're really not that far apart. What they have in common is this process where deliberate practice is just the scientific method applied to your craft. Mm-hmm. And once I started to figure that out, all of the pieces started to fall in place for me because I was realizing, oh, I just need to pursue my like timpani playing and, and my general musical development with the same like methodical rigor that I have in the lab. You know, I got, got my lab notebook, I run experiments, I record this stuff, I like analyze it, I make conclusions, I figure out what's the next step and how do I make this better. And that's essentially the gist of deliberate practice. And so from that point onward, I mean, I, I, I was still really far behind. Like, don't get me wrong. I was, I was showing up to auditions and, you know, the people that had been doing this, you know, in, in good music schools with great teachers were still really far ahead of where I was. But the difference was that for me now, I was able to like increase my trajectory really quickly. Right, right. And so over the next roughly three years, I got way, way better, way faster to the point where, you know, about 18 months after that, I started consistently advancing. And then I started getting to like, you know, a final here, finals there. And then it was at the point where, you know, Again, no nobody can ever promise you that this is going to work out. Like you, you just don't know. It's, it's I like, like the way, way you too said, competitive. I like the way you said that in your article. It's like if they are, they're lying or they're trying to sell you something. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Totally. And and you know, to be honest, like I had accepted that as part of my own work in this. I, you know, I, I kind of had this weird 
cockiness in a way, which was like, I, I can just keep doing this as long as I want. You know, I think I wrote in the article that like, you know, my efforts didn't have any particular expiration date associated with them because, you know, I had this other job that was supporting me. So I could just keep auditioning and getting better. And I figured, you know, if nothing else, as long as I'm consistently advancing and like, you know, getting into finals here and there, and as long as it's like frequent enough, probably one of these will turn over for me, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? And, and then, then it just happened that it was the Metropolitan Opera. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's a pretty good one go. to hit. Yeah. Gosh. So it's interesting because you, I, I, re, I mean, granted, I did not read every single word. Cause like you said, it's basically a book. So I didn't, I didn't read all of it, but I got the impression. This is the impression I got from reading your stuff is that you were a scientist who decided one day you wanted to play the timpani. Like you, it wasn't like uh, you had had some experience and you were sort of slowly working towards this. It was like, literally you had very little musical experience. And then one day you were like, I love music. I want to go win a job. Uh, You know what I mean? And then you were like, I'm going to apply the scientific method. So it's interesting to hear that um, there was a love for it behind all of this, driving all of that um, oh, sure. work. And then the continual experimentation, you just had the freedom to experiment rather than feeling like I have to figure this out because I'm broke and poor and I need a job. Exactly. Well, and, and that, that I mean, that gets to such a fundamental mindset component of this, right? Like sort of the, the philosophical disposition to your entire career. Like, are you doing it for for the love of the game, you know, as they'll say in, in which, you know, choose your sports ball, right? Or are you doing it because um, you need the trophy? Because you know, your whole life depends on getting that that pennant or that cup or, you know, whatever. And I feel like in music, a lot of people proceed with that, like, I just got to win the thing. And then, you know, as soon as I get that whatever, then my life will be great. And we all know that's not true. Like, yeah. you, you win, you, you, you know, I'm not going to name names, but you look around the 10 biggest orchestras in the country you can find a lot of miserable people in those orchestras. Yeah, I've been pretty open myself about how it just did not, it's not like a fallacy. Like I believed they would solve all my problems and I got the job. And in some ways I was more unhappy because it did not, it was not the fulfillment of the dream that I thought it would be. Right. And so that that sort of unfulfillment, I mean, I just put too much on it, right? It wasn't the job, it's problem. I just thought it was going to be like, this most magical thing ever. You know, I thought I'm going to be playing music for the rest of my career and it's awesome. And then I got there and it was a job and it's a cool job, but it's just, it's like a job, you know, we just play music. Right. We're not like, you know, I don't know. I think some of the language and the way I, I thought about it was why it didn't deliver happiness. I just wasn't balanced. It's it's strange too, because I mean, you know, so this, the, I, I would have just finished my seventh complete season at the Met had we had the complete season. Mm-hmm. Reflecting back on those seven years now, I I can honestly say that in spite of the turmoil and the drama and the Domingo stuff and the Levine stuff and just all, you know, it's been insane in the institution. That's a whole lot of other stuff we can exhume later if we want to. But in spite of all of that, I really genuinely have enjoyed the job. Not And and it's because I wasn't expecting it to solve all my problems. It was because... I love the process of this stuff. And for a timpanist, there's nothing like opera. It is it is the most like process intensive and sort of gratifying um, like intellectual dive into the art that you could possibly hope for. And so it just kind of 
was this perfect matchup where I had, I had been going at this all along because I had, you know, yes, a love of music, but, but in a way like music is easy to love. What I had was also this love of the process, this, this love of sort of grinding through this and getting better incrementally, um, being willing to fail sometimes catastrophically. So, (laughs) and just, you know, knowing that like, that's part of growth and, uh, and, and then seeing that sort of like take root in an operatic context and, and it's just been a great ride. Yeah. It's, I was interesting. I was going to ask if you missed it, like during the coronavirus where a lot of us, I mean, I can't, I don't think there's any orchestra that played during that time last spring. So I was going to ask if you found yourself missing it or if there was like a breath of not being in the middle of the grind of a season was almost like a breath of fresh air. You know, that's a really good question. Um, it's, it's a, it's both. And, and I kind of want to answer that two ways after my first season, um, I was talking to some colleagues and and they gave me some really good and, and some really important advice because it's counterintuitive. The um, it, it, it's worth stepping back for a second just to note that like the Metropolitan Opera's main season is like the most intense playing job in the country, but by far. And I, I'm not just like you know, chest thumping here or something. Like you just you look at the service hours of any of the other major symphonic orchestras. So New York Philharmonic, Chicago Symphony, Boston Symphony, they do about seven to 800 service hours in a normal season, a normal 52-week season. Mm-hmm. And that's spread across the whole year. So the Met, um, we do 220 shows a year, usually 26, 27 different operas, seven shows a week with rehearsals. That all adds up to about 1,200 service hours smushed between September and May. Wow. So it's just an incredibly grueling, incredibly dense schedule. String players worldwide know this just because it's like legendarily tough on your body. And like, it's, it's inevitable that we get to about February or March of every season and our first violinists just start dropping like flies. Cause it's just, it's too hard and they're getting injured. You know, um, I'm not saying this is good. I'm not saying it's ideal. It's just like the way our it's season what is it is. Yeah, yeah. So the advice my colleagues gave me was, you know, after we get done with the opera season and, you know, we're going to play some Carnegie concerts. And once that's done, so like early June, put down your sticks, just put them down and take some real time off. Not like a few days, not even two weeks, take like six weeks off, even two months. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's going to feel scary because you've been doing this at this like incredibly intense high level, you know, auditioning and then first year in the job and doing this, you know, in order to maintain sort of the sharp edge of your blade, right? So, so that you can feel like always ready to go. What they were really telling me is that there is a psychological and almost like spiritual dimension to the job where you need some time away from it so that you can come back recharged and like having, you know, reflected on this and able to re-engage, you know, not just at the level you were, but at even a higher level. And, and they, and they just said, don't, don't like the physical stuff will come back. Like you will figure out a sort of ramp up routine, you know, the calisthenics, whatever you need, 10 days, 14 days, and and you'll get back to where you were. And then probably you'll get back better than you were. And I was kind of like, okay, but I, you know, I, I can feel what they're saying. Like I was exhausted at the end of that first season. Right. Right. And, and that's basically what I did. And they were absolutely right. 
And so to a certain extent, I mean, the first few months of that, of, of the pandemic, kind of felt like that. It was like, oh, okay, I've just got this, you know, relief break. Um, that being said, uh, I, I miss playing acutely, you know, like mm. I, it, it's worth noting for just a minute, and this is not a pity trip at all, because frankly, right now I'm safe and I'm healthy and I am not suffering the same way so many, so many other people in this country are. Um, so like my timpani are, are basically trapped at the Met. I, I can't get in there. I can't really get them out. Even if I could get them out, I can't put them in my apartment we're leaving our apartment in the city because like you can't live in New York city. If you're not being paid, we've been furloughed without pay since April, blah, blah, blah. So, so like we're staying in this rental house. I can't get the drums through the front door. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. bottom line, like I haven't touched a timpano since March 12th. Wow. And that's okay. Honestly. I mean, would I rather it were different? Do I miss playing? Of course I do. Um, but I've also had this time to reflect on all this other stuff, you know, to do podcasts like this, to be teaching. I've had my deliberate practice boot camp that I started in July. That's really taken off. That's been like a really nice opportunity for people to kind of engage with these ideas. It's it's pay what you can with a you know twenty five dollar minimum. So a lot of people have jumped on that, and and we're donating all the proceeds to Artist Relief and NAACP. So like. I kind of feel like my disposition at this point is there are more than enough musical and teaching projects. And if I don't get to actually bang on drums for a while, like I'll survive. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is a very, and in my opinion, this is a very important conversation because you're basically just saying your whole identity is not whether you're the principal timpanist of the Met. Like you can do other things. There are other skills that you have. There are other ways that you can serve. There are other ways you can make an impact and arguably possibly more of an impact uh, because you're affecting lives, like not just through your music making, but like you're helping other people see a new reality, a, a paradigm shift, right? Which is like, in some ways, very, 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 very important work to be doing, in my opinion. And then being able to also donate these, you know, that's like the next level of I'm actually like supporting causes I believe in through the work that I'm doing. So in some ways, like you could argue that this is like, a very meaningful and impactful time in your life that we possibly wouldn't have had if yeah. none of this would have come about. We would have just been doing the grind and never stopped to think about what else, what other ways could we serve. I, I absolutely think so, and and I and I really hope you're right about like the the impact we can have right now, and that, you know that we can have in the longer term. And um, you know, it's 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 always difficult to try to isolate silver linings in the midst of like, you know, nearing a, a death toll of 200,000 and like the entire West coast is on fire. So it's like, I don't, sure, yeah. don't want to be like too optimistic or Pollyanna about anything. Cause I know people might not be feeling that right now, but that being said, you're right. There are some like little green shoes here. And, and, and I think it's, it's a really important time. And it's a really critical time to be having these conversations within the performing arts because you know, our, our relationship to talent, our relationship to our careers, our relationship to how we identify with all of this stuff and, and the institutions in, in which these happen and, and the extent to which these institutions have been plagued by decades of, of, of institutionalized racism and misogyny and like what we consider our role as artists to be and, and how we define these roles. It's all happening right now. It's all changing. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, and I get it. It is, it's a lot easier for me to say, I, 
Jason do not personally have my complete identity wrapped up in banging on drums in the pit of the Met because I know what it feels like to have a different identity. Like I, I was the scientist going around the world and giving talks and writing papers and doing all of this stuff. So I know what that transition feels like. But one of the big messages from my seminars this summer has been like, don't, don't sell yourself short as a musician. You know, like I think too often in musical pedagogy situations, music performance environments, music school, conservatories, everything else, it can be so narrowly focused that you forget what the actual skills are that we're developing. You know, and so I sort of like throughout the course of these five evenings of the seminar, I, I, I generate this sort of tautology, this like circular logic that's saying, if you are practicing well, right? You're, you're doing deliberate practice, whether or not you've read my blogs or whether or not you know about Anders Ericsson. Like if you're doing it well, you're already doing this stuff. You're already doing things like recording yourself and getting feedback and listening back to it and, and sort of like experimenting and and getting ideas that are both objective and subjective and, and sort of combining these aesthetic principles in there. You're doing all of this stuff. Well, if you're doing all of this stuff, that means that you're good at the scientific method. And therefore, you have a diverse and versatile skill set. And maybe you're a freelancer right now that like lost all of your work back in March and you have yet to see anything come up. Or maybe, you know, you're you're a player in a Big Ten orchestra and you're in the same boat as me. And you're like, I have no idea when we're going to be playing again. Regardless of any of that, you can be in this place to leverage these other skills and not feel bad about it. Like you can actually feel invigorated and sort of empowered knowing that like, okay, I was doing this thing, which was, you know, playing a string instrument in an opera pit or blowing on a horn on a stage or whatever that is. And I love doing that, but the same skills that let me do that can also let me do these other things. And if I need to do that to survive for the next six or 12 or 18 or 36 months, um, that's okay. You know? Yeah. I had this talk recently with uh, Matt Bronstein about just the concept of skills. And I, I, I believe for a long time that the skill set that I have is playing the trumpet. And I realized that that's just wrong. Like that's not yeah. a skill set. That is an application of a skill set that I have. And like you're saying, it could be avert, like the scientific method. That's a skill set. Or it could be that, uh, I mean, I believe it's a combination of skill set and then just like innate gifts. But like playing the trumpet is not an innate gift. Like you're talking about, like whether you're talented or you're not, it's an application of innate gifts. Like the brain that I have is not something I worked for. I was just, that's the brain that I have, right? Like the ear that I have is not something I necessarily worked for. I just have that ear. And so, yeah, it might lend itself towards a musical application because it seems like those things work well together. But at a certain point, it will be difficult. There's going to be effort. There's going to be work. And this is where I think the natural talent, I'm going to release a video. At the time of this recording, I'm releasing a video tomorrow on my YouTube channel about natural talent versus effort. And there's all sorts of books I reference, or I just, you know, I'm going to leave links to Grit by Angela Duckworth and yeah. um, the Talent Code. And, you know, I, I think the interesting part, there's all sorts of ways, you know, we could talk about this. And the point I make at the end of that video, I'd love your perspective on this is, it just doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if you're good at something or if you're not good at something, if you want to do it. 
Like there's a method that you can apply and you can get better. And the point should not be to become the best at something. It should be to become the best that you can be at something. And how can that thing enrich your life? And not necessarily like, well, if it's hard, it must not be for me. Like who cares? You know, who cares if it's hard? <laughs> it just doesn't matter. You you just brought up like six different things I want to drill into because I think it's it's so important. Again, it's so important right now. Like this, this idea of innate talent, innate gifts, in a ear, whatever, right? So the last 30, 40 years of research in psychology, neurology, um, sometimes even anthropology, have been pretty revelatory in um, overturning and sort of tearing down various paradigms that existed for, I mean, millennia, really. And you know, talk, talk about ear for a second, right? Like it was just assumed forever that perfect pitch was innate. You either have it or you don't. Well, then starting about 15, 20 years ago, uh, people started to study this and realized like, oh, no, it's actually, that's that's not how it works. Um, you see this, this preponderance in Asian culture of young kids developing perfect pitch. And they started to relate it to, oh, it's because they're learning a tonal language from a very, very early age. And so, you know, virtually everybody who's not born with a, with an actual, like, physically diagnosable hearing problem has the capacity to develop perfect pitch. And it's just a matter of, like, when you get that influence. And so then it was like, okay, well, so we're like these little sponges when we're, you know, 18 to 36 months old. And, and that's when we can develop perfect pitch. And if, and if you don't have it by then, you've lost it. Even that's not true. More recently there's been work to demonstrate that you can be in your 50s, you can be in your 70s. And so long as you train the right way, you can develop perfect pitch. And one of the things that Erickson, as the researcher, and then a lot of his colleagues and people who've been looking at deliberate practice have uncovered is that anywhere you go to identify something innate and measurable in terms of skill development over a long time that leads to something that is expertise or expert level performance, whether it's music or chess or neurosurgery or any of these things. When you go to look for the innate thing, it's like a mirage and it just vanishes. You can't, you can't pin it down. And, and with some very obvious exceptions that almost prove the rule, like basketball, where, you know, it really helps to be tall and you can't, you know, change your own height with, with, you know, exceptions like that. Um, they just keep finding that there is no evidence for genetic-based skill. Now, this is different from saying, um, you know, we also have to say this, the, the standard thing you say in science, which is it's very difficult to prove a negative. So we can't categorically say it doesn't exist because we just haven't found evidence for it yet. Right, but right. we've been looking really hard now <laughs> for, for decades, and, and we haven't seen it. Um, What's also really interesting about this is that it is true that anyone who teaches, and, and especially anyone who works with young kids, you can see that people pick things up at different rates, take to it, quote unquote, naturally, right? Mm -hmm. It is therefore really easy to extrapolate from that to say, oh, well, they have an innate talent for X, Y, or Z, right? And therefore, like everything later is just going to be a lot easier for them. That is, in fact, not true. And it's, and it's demonstrably so. And in, in there's a really interesting study of chess players where they were looking for 
the correlation between sort of picking it up quickly and then like ultimate grandmaster level tournament performance, you know, got people like Magnus Carlson, sure. right? And so, so even mentioning that the concept IQ is a bit fraught because um, it's been around for a long time, just like standardized tests, it incorporates a whole lot of biases in it and like cultural problems and how they frame the test. And, and, and the more they start to evaluate what is IQ even measuring, the, the less they know. And so, so it's been a while now since anyone was actually arguing that like IQ is a measure of intelligence. Probably not, right? Since the early 80s, psychologists like Howard Gardner have been developing these theories of multiple intelligences, right? So you can have emotional intelligence and this intelligence and spatial intelligence, all of these things, right? Point being that IQ seems to be some proxy for like how quickly do you pick things up? Okay. You can imagine kids like joining the sixth grade chess team. Right. Picking up the rules quickly, figuring out like, oh, the knight moves in like kind of an L shape and pawns can do this and and starting to develop some basic, you know, strategy and, and tactics and everything. And kids pick it up quickly. and It's like, cool. So they're the next Bobby Fisher. No. What they actually find is that over time, there is an inverse correlation between IQ and grandmaster level performance. So it's the lower IQ players that do better consistently in their careers. Why is this? This is this is insane, right? This would seem to completely defy expectations for anybody who teaches kids and is like, well, no, but that one, that one over there is quote unquote talented. Can I guess? Do it. Uh, well, I would say it's it's I think a combination of two things. One, like the sample size is too short. Like you can't say within a span of like a few weeks or a month or a year is enough time to determine where somebody will end up 30, 40, 50 years from now. And like because of things like compound interest, like <laughs> a little bit of things over the course of a very long period of time. So like this, the, this, the length of time you're measuring, I think matters to whether or not intelligence matters. And then the other thing is, is just the struggle is what like matters, right? The struggle is what teaches somebody and how they learn deeply. And so someone who naturally picks it up is going to have a hard time breaking through some of those barriers where all of a sudden something doesn't make sense. And the people that just learn that suffering and struggle is part of the process, they're like, oh, I've just had another part where I got to just keep working and keep learning and to do it. And so ultimately, I think those two things combined, that's at least my take on it. Those two things combined mean that over the course of 30 or 40 or 50 years, the person who has struggled and broken through more barriers will end up in a spot that's much higher I so then, and I'm going to ask you this question and let you respond to all of it. But basically, like I think the question then comes down to: Are you willing to make 30 years your sample size, or are you <laughs> limiting it to? Well, I'm going to try this for six months, and if it doesn't work, it must not be for me. I would be curious for a re response to all of that. Yes, you basically nailed it. I, I that's almost all I need to say. Good job, you nailed it. Um, yeah, and, and specifically what the researchers found, they documented is this thing called the coasting effect, where, you know, kids that are told they're talented think they don't have to work hard. Or it seems like they don't have to work hard because they, they picked up something quick. And then meanwhile, guys like me were sitting there just struggling. <laughs> like, oh, no. But specifically what's happening, and, and this is one of the really interesting aspects of the deliberate practice research, is that um, – there's this concept called mental representations. And in my collaboration with Erickson, we were talking about how this is really, it's kind of the least um, talks about or understood thing about 
practicing and, and like a life in music, but it's actually the most important thing. And what it is, is your kind of abstract mental framework for what greatness looks and sounds like. And, you know, in chess, it's like thinking 15 moves ahead and like knowing the strategy. In music, it's like I have a comprehensive picture of how this excerpt and how this whole movement and how this whole symphony is supposed to sound. And I have a stylistic understanding of how Beethoven one should progress through two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and onto Brahms. And like, like the real, like intellect merging with aesthetics. Um, I often, when I'm trying to describe this to people, I, I say, think of an excerpt you play all the time. So like, all right, Ryan, you probably play Mahler five a lot, right? Okay, so so you think about all the things about that that you could like write down. You know what what is your sort of target tempo? How are you thinking about the articulation um, for some of the longer spots in the first movement? Like where are you going to breathe? You know what what's your roadmap for this? What can you write down? But then when you actually sit there and like maybe even close your eyes for a minute and just hear in your mind's ear the absolute most ideal performance of you playing it, that's your mental representation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tying it back to chess, the kids who struggle form more sophisticated mental representations from an earlier age. That and makes so, perfect like sense, said, yeah. Yeah. And so like you said, it's it's the struggle that builds greatness over time. So Because you learn the, the nuance. Irony, you like learn the nuance of the thing. Yes. It's not just like, well, this is what I know and what I know is what I know. But you like are open to the idea that because I because I'm struggling, I learn all of these little intricacies that I may not have learned if I just like breeze through. And those intricacies, gosh, what book was I just reading? Um, it's just talking about, oh, it was the flow book, uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and he's just talking about like what, it's basically you're adding complexity to your consciousness essentially. And that's yes. what causes growth, yeah. Well, and so so the, the sort of grand irony of all of it is that, to the extent that talent even exists or is measurable or is something that we sort of conflate with the ability to pick something up quickly, being talented is a disadvantage. And this, this is the paradigm that I think is starting to kind of seep through now finally in music performance. Other fields have, have picked this up readily, right? Like you look at Major League Baseball, you look at what Billy Bean with the Oakland Athletics back in the 90s, documented in Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, and then the movie with yeah. Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, getting away from this kind of nonsense. It's like, oh, well, that guy's got talent, and I just like to cut of his jib, and he's got a, like, great attitude. And, blah, blah, blah. and Billy Bean was like, can we just look at the stats for a minute? Like, what does it take to have a good, successful ball team? And, like, let's put together the undervalued players that can do that. And, you know, he got to the pennant, with something like a tenth the budget of the Yankees, right? This was such a powerful approach to conceiving of what talent meant that it remade Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NBA and everything else. So like basically every major sports team now implements some version of, you know, in in sports it's called sabermetrics. It's just deliberate practice. It's the same basic idea. Yeah, so I want to get into deliberate practice. You know, you've said it's the scientific method as applied to music, but that is not sufficient enough for me. (laughs) <laughs> so um, the first, the thing I want you to answer first, and this will be a much harder question to answer. That's why we're going to start with it because once we get into it, it'll make more sense. Why does it matter? 
Like, why does it matter? What do we gain from trying to practice deliberately versus just like showing up? Like what, in your opinion, why does it matter? So fair question. Um, You asked me a couple things earlier too that were like, what, um, what's what sort of the 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 point of all of it, or you know, whatever, you know, are you willing to expand your time frame to to thirty or 40, 50 years, whatever, right? And and it relates very closely to a question that I have for years now had all of my students answer, which kind of points to your latest question. My questions are like, don't. Don't ask yourself, am I good enough? I don't think that's meaningful. I don't even know what that means. I mean, your your level of skill at any different time is, is variable and it's complex. Ask yourself instead, am I willing to do the work? You know, do, do you like the work? And, and the work is this process and it's grueling. And anyone who's spent time in a music career knows that it is not just all fun. Like it is a slog and it requires you to leave your ego aside and confront all of your deficiencies and all of your flaws and and problems and be sort of like committed to doing this all of the time. And that is how you get better. Now, the second question I have with this, and, and it relates back to the mindset idea is, okay, let's assume you're willing to do the work for how long, right? Are, why are you doing that? For what reason? You know, and one of the things I was asking myself when I was back in my mid-20s, you know, when I, when I was really starting to focus on auditioning, the question I asked myself was, okay, let me project forward, say, 10 years. All right. I'm 35 and I still haven't made it. Right. I haven't, I haven't achieved whatever kind of success I'm defining. And this is different for different people, right? Sometimes it's a 10-year job in an orchestra. For some people, it might be, um, you know, touring as a, as a soloist, playing concertos with orchestras. Maybe it's chamber music. Maybe it's a, a big teaching gig at a major music school. Whatever that is, it still hasn't happened yet. The question is, will it have been worth it? You know, will, will all of that work have been worth it? Is, it? is it gratifying and rewarding in its own right? I think these are really critical questions. I think... Um, a lot of times these questions kind of go unanswered until the bluff gets called at some point and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not actually happy doing this. So why, why does deliberate practice matter? Well, it, it, at the most sort of basic philosophical, almost, again, spiritual level, it matters so that you can have like a gratifying career. The other way it matters is that if you care about getting better, which I hope you do, because I'm not sure why else you're doing this if, if you don't. Um, deliberate practice is this framework that, you know, is, is really the demonstrated way to get better the fastest at anything. And so to sort of expand on like what the researchers were doing, Can I they didn't on? invent this, hang right? They, they didn't make this up. What they did is they went out and they looked at what expert performers in all of these different fields were doing and how they were doing it. And they noted all of the commonalities and just wrote it down. Yeah, but so, but that didn't answer my question. 
<laughs> and that's awesome. That's awesome because my I feel like my question is a question that I've been asking for a while now. And it's 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 like not just if we have discussed how career success isn't gonna necessarily make you happy. And if we're if like some people are like, well, I don't really care if it happens as fast as possible, why does deliberate practice matter? I guess another way to put this would be it is it. it, it let me say this. There's nothing wrong with getting better more slowly, right? Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with undeliberate practice, you know? And it's fine. And if, and if you're essentially just like a hobbyist who has a different career and like you enjoy playing in your community orchestra and doing all of that stuff, more power to you, you know? Like, I, I truly, you can engage at this with whatever level of intensity you want to. But... Again, I think you can kind of construct this this idea that, like, we know that just fixating on specific outcomes, like, oh, I'm going to get that job and it's and then my life is going to be happy, or oh, I'm going to get this, you know, I'm going to get this promotion at work and then my life is going to be happy. Oh, just, that is a recipe for misery. Mm-hmm. Like, we we know this, and so if you're not focused on that, what are you focused on? Well, you're focused on a process. Mm-hmm. Now, deliberate practice ends up being that process, and you can you can employ that process with whatever level of rigor or intensity you want to. But at the end of the day, for me, like that's why it's important because these other things are just like empty calories. It's just this this mirage, and and at the end of it, there's there's no there there, you know. Yeah. Can I uh, can I explain to you kind of where where I where I'm sitting with this question, and then just to see what you have to say to it? Yeah, please. I think it matters because, and I would love you to reflect upon, if no one's ever asked you this question, it'll be an interesting one. Just to reflect upon who you became in the process of doing this. So what kind of, like, who were you when you started this deliberate practice thing? Who were you when you won the Metropolitan Opera job? Who are you now through a love of the process? Like, did you change as a human being through the process of deciding that I'm going to take this particular discipline this seriously. So not so much that even the result of the, the actual pro like the actual process, but that you may have been a different person on the other side. Cause for me, that's where I'm at. Like who even cares if there's career success, who even cares if it's like the most optimal thing? Well, for me, the reason it matters is because it's for you. It's not mm. for other people. It's for you to figure out what you are capable of. So whether you win a job in the Met is irrelevant. It's do you feel like you deserve to find out what you're capable of? If so, this process, thinking about deliberate practice and what it means for you is the beginning and the continuation of finding out who, like, what are you capable of? What boundaries can you break that you never thought were possible? Because you're not going to do it without deliberate practice, I think like slow or like sort of slower undeliberate practice might get you somewhere, but to be able to break actual boundaries and like change the way you see yourself will require a, like that process that allows you to ask those hard questions like you described earlier. I mean, I think you're hundred percent right. It's a beautiful way to say it. And, and I mean, yes, I absolutely became a different person in the process. Um, I think it forces you to confront ideas like, perfection or 
humility, right? Realizing that like perfect is not a thing. Realizing that the struggle is eternal. Um, You know, realizing that it, it is this constant and ceaseless effort to keep improving and that there can be just joy in that very dedication because you're figuring out what you're capable of and that what you're capable of is not fixed. You know, that there's no, there's no ceiling imposed there by anyone or anything or your genes or anything else. That is, I think, a very powerful human message. But, but I want to actually push back on you a little bit because I think it's more important than that. I think that for the self and for our relationship to our sort of our own identity and our, our sort of peace with ourselves and, and how we proceed through the world, I think this is absolutely essential. But given my you know, work and, and my, my career in science, I would actually argue something above and beyond this, which is that our world needs expertise. I wrote a blog post in July uh, and the title of it was <clears throat> The Most Teachable Era in Human History for the Necessity of Expertise. And the cover image was just the United States uh, COVID case rate compared to the rest of the world. We're, we're living through, I, again, I, I believe this is just self-evident. Like, I don't even really need to elaborate on this. We're, we're living through this time that shows how critical it is for societies and for civilization as a whole to have experts that know what they're doing. Because when we don't, people die. And so in music, we have this relationship to expertise and expert performance, which is artistic and which can be, you know, ennobling and which, you know, at the end of the day, I think about like, yeah, my, my job, what is my job? I bang on drums. That's that's one part of it. But my job is to vibrate air at people and make them feel something, right? And ideally, if we do our jobs well, they have an experience of this art form that, that can also enhance their life. And, and this is critical. And, and I've never felt stronger about it than in thinking about how an opera like Fidelio resonates today because Fidelio is a Black Lives Matter opera. Fidelio is all about the violence inflicted by the state upon people who are wrongfully imprisoned and tortured. And, you know, it's it's right. It's all in the opera, you know, back in the early 19th century. So it has incredible social resonance, but then you look at who is working at the CDC, these, these career scientists, you look at the people out there modeling, you know, epidemiological predictions and, and you start to realize, like, I, I just had this, um, I mean, throughout March and April, it was this whole different relationship with understanding why deliberate practice is so important. Because, yes, it's, it's one thing in music and the way it manifests. But, good God, we need it everywhere. We need it to make our society function. And when we don't have it, we're living through the results right now. There's real stakes. That's, that's why it's important. I, I, I totally agree. I totally see your point, and I totally agree. Do you think expertise is a byproduct or a goal? Like, it's you, a process. Yeah, right. So basically, it's I. So I, I, I guess the way I'm thinking about it is, if we set out to just say, "How can I practice this thing that I care about very deliberately, whether I'm good or bad, so I can learn as much as I can," and 
as a result, become an expert in this thing that I've practiced deliberately about. Like that seems to be a byproduct of the, I want to find out what I can know, what I'm capable of. Would you agree? Or do you feel like there's another angle that I'm not seeing? It's funny because as you were saying that, I was still, I was still thinking of it in the like, in the mindset of science where like, <laughs> like science is incredibly messy, right? Like this is one thing that I think is, is underappreciated from, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the public at large, which is that, you know, most of science is things not working and things failing. And, and it's like, I, I wrote this other blog post that was just called, um, you know, well-documented failure. <laughs> like that's, that is pretty much the entire uh, life of being a scientist. Like most of what you're doing, like, uh, didn't get results today, didn't get results today. And kind of what you're doing is like putting together a roadmap so other people don't have to make those same mistakes. And that is how eventually progress can happen. Right, right. And, and you know, so, so again, what, what's the destination of science? Like, is it, is it the goal or the byproduct? It, I'm not sure how to answer that because it's, it's this like constant process of just trying to make it better. And along the way, we develop penicillin and a polio vaccine and like indoor plumbing and like all of this other stuff. Yeah, right, right. And, and it, you know, alleviates human suffering in its, in its best incarnation. Yeah. So to me, that's, um, I mean, I'm not trying to like, just be like, what I think is, it just sounds like it's a byproduct. Like all those amazing things are a byproduct of a much greater search. Like the search is to figure out like, how can we learn as much as we possibly can? And then like, oh, wow. Like we can see like, and then I feel like what happens to me, what happens is like, you learn a whole bunch of stuff. And then like one day you learn something that all of a sudden makes you go like, oh, that could like help polio. And then that, right. then it's like, then it's like, okay, now let's like, let's go off of this like grander search and let's like hyper-specialize on figuring out how to apply this thing to polio. For I feel for a musician, it's the same kind of idea where we're just generally trying to see what am I capable of? And then you hypothetically get to a place or you learn something where all of a sudden you can play Mahler 5 the way you hear it in your head. And now you're like, oh, well, maybe I should I should go in this particular direction. Or if you're like a jazz, you know, you play uh, jazz or commercial or big band or whatever, like you're going to go in a different direction. But it sort of seems like the general, like so many winning a job, uh, finding some sort of cure for something seems to be like a byproduct of, like you said, the process for just figuring out how good can we figure, like, how much can we figure out? How far can we take this? How much? And like for a personal search of a personal journey of like, you weren't searching for the Met. You were searching for how can I deliberately find out what I'm capable of doing? And the Met was like a byproduct. To me, that's just an important point. I don't know. I guess I'm just- It's so on. right. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just thrilled you're talking about it this way because honestly, until this afternoon, I hadn't quite made the same connection back to a, a conversation I had in 2012. Okay, so this was- this was like maybe six months before I won the Met audition. I didn't know that was coming down the pike. Like, you know, it was still this, this very innocent time. But it, it relates perfectly to this idea of like, what is our sort of overall mission as musicians and, and like, what is science about? So the talk I had was I was, at, I was at this conference. It was a pretty small conference. So one of these kind of like invite-only things, it was in uh, – Napa. So of course it's like beautiful there and they're like plying us with wine and all this stuff. And this guy gave an invited talk and his name is Greg Tassie. He, he was a scientist working at um, 
NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And he was both a scientist and an economist. And the, the thrust of his talk was um, that, you know, he was sort of like, ladies and gentlemen, our scientific progress is imperiled by the fact that we are not spending enough money on basic research. Basic research is, is essentially exactly what you're talking about. It's just being curious and trying to figure out what we can learn rather than chasing specific applications and money. And what he showed was this really uh, just devastating plot of like investment in basic research over time. And starting you know, from, from the 1920s up through World War II and the Manhattan Project and the space race and all of this, it skyrocketed. And as a result of that, we got all of these incredible technological byproducts. And then starting roughly when Reagan took office, this started to plummet. And it's plummeted ever since. And his point was, we're going to run out of a pipeline here because we've been harvesting all of this investment in the process for all of these decades, but we're not investing in the process anymore. Mm -hmm. and, and we're seeing it. And, and already you can look around like pharmaceutical companies are, are having a hell of a time with this because they spent all of their money in marketing and not enough in research and development. And, and, it's, and it's basically the same thing. Like if, if you're just in it to chase the job or to chase, you know, the, the, the competition award or chase this or that, not only are you going to be unhappy, but like where are you even going to end up? And I think it also allows you to to never stop growing. Right. If the process is the important part, you may have a specific application to say, I would like to learn about the process. I'm going to go after these particular goals. But one of the things I struggled with was once I won my job, I didn't know what to do. Like I had reached the thing. I was like, cool. Yeah. And then I didn't really understand how to get better. I understood how to get ready for an audition and have everything geared toward that. But A, I didn't know how to use the audition to get better. We'll talk about that pretty soon. Sure. Um, but then I also just didn't understand, like, what did I want to get better at? Like, what does better mean for me at this point? Like, I wasn't curious about, like, what could be better. I had maybe decided things that I was good at, things that I knew I could do, you know, like a self, like a sort of a limiting view, but also just like, what do I want? Like, what do I want to do? Like, what do I want to get better at? You know, like, I couldn't yeah. ask myself those questions because I didn't, I wasn't invested in like, and like to a, to an extent, I I was in, as invested in long-term like process-based things as I could have been. And it was still so limited. So of <laughs> course that's like your own personal growth, right? But like for you, what does that look like? You win the job in the Met. What is like then the process look for you? What's growth look like for you once you've hit that? How do you determine and how do you grow? That's a great question. I've thought a lot of times about sort of this, um, you know, almost the multiverse theory of like, okay, what would have happened uh, you know, back in like late 2012 and early 2013, there were a slew of different Tiffany auditions. So within a few months, I took, you know, Detroit, Baltimore, the Met, finals of Chicago Symphony, like all, all of this stuff was happening. And, um, you know, what if it had gone differently, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I can see like, the way things might have proceeded in a symphonic orchestra job, right? And I, I can look back and kind of imagine how that would have gone and how I would have worked on refining a lot of just the like basic ensemble playing stuff. You know, I, I would have already known most of the repertoire. So it wasn't so much about like learning new notes, but just again, refinement, right? And just figuring out how to be a better, more, more, powerful, sensitive, tonally aware, timpanist, like all of the things that are, you know, kind of part of my job. The interesting thing about starting at the Met 
is that you're back to like learning stuff mm. from scratch, right? Because it's all so unfamiliar, yeah. I mean, how many operas have you played? Well, only because I've played in an opera festival for a few years, like oh, okay, like okay, six. <laughs> right, right. So, so this is funny though, because even right, even somebody like you who has played in an opera festival, six operas, right, right. My first season, I had to learn like twenty four. Yeah. <laughs> now think think for a minute about like what this really means, because okay, so you know, by playing the opera festival, you know that like operas are long. Mm-hmm. Three hours is a short opera. Four and a half, five, six. Now we're talking like some of the longer operas. But at a minimum, you know, an opera contains at least two to three symphonies worth of musical material, right? And like we're saying, uh, nobody studies this stuff in school. Like you, you rarely encounter this freelancing because how could you? There's just not enough opera orchestras out there. Right, right. And so what, what I'm sort of painting here is that for most people that join the Met Orchestra, their first season is the equivalent of learning like 60 to 75 new symphonies from scratch. Right. Like as if you had never even heard of Mahler 1 through 9, Beethoven 1 through 9, Sibelius 1 through 7, Dvorak 1 through blah, blah, blah. And you've got all of that to learn in season one. <laughs> and then the next season, you're going to have yeah, another how 24. Do you, how do you just it, not fail, so, you know? Well, and so that's that's why like, the the process for me was both uh, I, I was able to leverage what I was already doing, I think, to make that process. I'm, I'm not going to say it was pleasant. It was uh, brutalizing, but I lessened the suffering of it, I think, mm-hmm. compared to what it could have been. Um, you know, it, opera is so nuts and so crazy and so tricky. It is so easy to step in holes, right? You know, you know this. You're playing in these opera festivals, right? There is a basic humility, I think, that comes with this and, and you know, I think is, is a sort of compassionate aspect of our orchestra where every new player is going to step in some big hole. It's guaranteed. Like, how can you not? <laughs> You're trying to learn, you know, Aida and Bohem and Carmen and Ruzalka and all of this stuff. And at some point, even if you're in the back of the first violins, it's going to be like, fermata, 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 that was me. Sorry. Right. But thankfully everybody has this feeling that like they've done that too. Mm-hmm. And you know, there, but for the grace of just a few seconds of lapsed concentration, I could do the same thing. Right. Right. And so, so it is um, sort of inherently process focusing. Cause you're like, Oh yeah, oh, I, I have a lot of stuff to learn, but it's not going to be perfect. Right. Right. In, in a way it forces you to change your expectation because like, you know, I, I could I could sort of imagine that the pressure joining if, if I'd been joining a symphony orchestra, it would have been like, oh, this has got to be perfect. Joining the Metropolitan Opera as a you know new player in my first season, learning virtually twenty four operas from scratch. I'm like, of course this isn't going to be as good as I'm going to get it later. How could it be? There's only twenty four hours in the day. Right. I got to sleep. <laughs> like I'm going to get this stuff as good as I possibly can. For my for my first year to like show this trajectory of of radical improvement, trying to sound like I've been playing these things for years, but you know, fake it till you make it, yeah, right? Yeah. So yeah, I completely agree. And so what you're saying is essentially you're allowing yourself to not know as much as you're going to know one year or two years or three years from now. Like that's the point is we should allow ourselves. And this is difficult when you join a group 
full of people who've played these pieces however many times. Like you feel like you have to all of a sudden rise to this level that it's just, you're just not there and it's fine. Now, you're obviously a talented enough, a hardworking enough, process-oriented musician to win that job. So you deserve to be there. But the idea that like then we have to all of a sudden have 30 years of experience at the same exact time just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And if so, if you believe that we're a work in progress and it's okay for it not to be perfect and that in five years, I'll know more than I knew today and that's okay. What is the point? Like, what's your end date? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. does that make sense? I, well, what, what, you, what you were just describing was a part of the deliberate practice framework, which is feedback. Like, so if mental representations is sort of the thing Erickson said is like the most important thing, how you get there and how you refine it is through feedback. Do you want to just comes do you want to dive into this? Ways. Should we just What's dive that? into the deliberate Let's practice? Just dive yeah, in, yeah. Right? Cuz I've been putting well, it off for like an hour now. We might as well get into the thing we were going to talk about. Well, I think it's a perfect segue from like how I was dealing with my first couple seasons, sure, sure. right? Because what was essential for me was to be getting feedback. Now, luckily, like the met gets recorded all of the time. And so in in this weird like kind of insane way we don't get in-house access to our own recordings right like like we're, we're we're constantly being recorded for like serious internet radio like two three times a week i can't get those any other way than like logging on to sirius xm and recording it through audacity <laughs> nuts but whatever i was like i i'm gonna do whatever i need to do to like get the kind of feedback i need and and you know understanding that that operatic timpani has this kind of like hierarchy of priorities for what I need to be improving on. Like, do I need to be considering like the, the tone and the, and the mallets and just the you know, little nuances? Yes, I do. But more importantly than anything else, I need to be playing in the right place. Right, right, yeah. Placement is such a big deal in opera. And even though like recordings don't always fully capture the sound and the space and all this other stuff, I could rely on these recordings for placement and I could figure out like where I was having problems because the, you know, just the geometric setup of a pit is different than, you know, it normally is on a symphonic stage. Normally I was used to playing, you know, back center, right? Sort of this, this like symmetrical relationship between the conductor and the timpanist. Mm -hmm. At the Met, most of the time I'm over on like what is stage left. So I'm like, I'm behind the brass way, way off in the corner. And so figuring out how to like, get time issues worked out with the double basses who are like a hundred feet away and the first violins and you know all of that, that's kind of a nightmare. And so I had this way to be getting feedback that way and then figuring out who I could talk to in the orchestra and, you know, all of this kinds of stuff, right? I think so many of the problems with, um, I mean, I, I, I don't intend to open a needless can of worms here, but like the tenure process can be really uh, stressful for a lot of musicians around the country in, in symphonic orchestras. And I think part of that is because it, the feedback process just hasn't been given a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. like, kind of like you're saying, like we, we shouldn't be expecting people to be perfect. What we should be trying to create is a system where people come in demonstrating they already have a really good process. And so now we're going to feed them as much constructive feedback as we can to get that level improved totally, even more. Totally. You know what I don't like about deliberate practice? Is it just, <laughs> it's not quite specific enough for me, right? Like what I think would be very, what I'm trying to do and what I think is really beneficial, and you've done it, I think you've done it in your blog post, but if you want to talk about it here, is I think a, a loose, 
structure of where to start. Like maybe it's not the best system ever for everybody, but it's a system that works, right? So for example, uh, I've sort of like very recently branded the way I think about like a fundamentals routine, but progress in general as the gold method, right? So G is goal oriented. That's first thing. You got to know what you're trying to accomplish before you start accomplishing anything. Got to know where you're headed. Uh, The O is optimal starting place. Like find a place where you can already be having the habits that you want to, because I just feel like we have this concept that I want to play like the best in the world. But, and so I'm just going to start playing things, but not sound great. And like, when are you going to develop those habits that are going to allow you to do that? If you don't slow down or pick things that are uh, in the, with, you know, with this idea of flow where it's just enough of a challenge, but you can meet that challenge so that you can have good habits now, you're just not playing the difficulty of things that you maybe want to play. So instead of saying, I'm going to play badly on difficult things, it's I'm going to play well on everything. I'm just going to play easier stuff until I get there. And then the third step, the L is logical progression. Like we need to figure out a way how we're going to get from where we started to where we want to go. But it needs to be logical. Like we can't just, we can't decide in that day. For me, like planning and plotting things out ahead of time is very beneficial because then we're not in the middle of an emotional decision of I sound terrible. I'm going to just go like over and over and over or everything is great. I'm going to overplay and dig into tomorrow. Like you're exactly where you need to be based on your logical progression. And D is a defined time frame. So then we're setting a time frame where we're going to commit to a particular plan. And then we get the chance to reflect and say, did that work? Did I actually accomplish what I wanted to accomplish? If not, how can I make a better plan? So you're constantly refining the learning, right? So for me, it's like four pillars and I have my way of applying it in the way that I do it. Uh, but like, to me, those four pillars, like help give a loose structure. So it's like, like I can, okay, what's an optimal starting place? Like, okay. Like for me, and so I'm just curious if you have ways that you, what does it look like for you to apply like a loose or maybe even a specific structure to the idea of deliberate practice being, you have feedback loops, obviously you're recording yourself. And then I know there's like being goal oriented is in there as well. Just like, what does that look like for you? So people listening might be able to, sorry for the long rant here, but. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's wonderful. In fact, I was thinking as you were describing that, it's like, man, it sounds like he went through my boot camp this summer and is talking about what I'm doing. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, (laughs) like you can get there any number of ways. And I think what I want you to, I would like you to talk about, I guess, if you want to talk about what you do in the boot camp to whatever extent you want to, but also that to me, what I'm trying to do is point people to a truth, which is what is deliberate practice or what is deep practice or what is efficiency? Like, I don't care if you do it my way, but my way is a way that does work for me. And so starting there and then paying attention to like what is missing rather than just saying we're just going to, it's not, I don't think it's unique. I don't think we're all as unique as we think we are, right? I, right. Well, and, and, and again, sort of to, to be clear, like what, what Erickson was doing in this research of, of developing a deliberate practice framework was to essentially just go around again to like, you know, people like you who are, who are articulating a, a coherent sort of teaching method and pedagogy and just taking notes on it and saying like, right. cool, what, what are they talking about? Right. So, I mean, there, there's a, there's a blog post I wrote called the deliberate practice book club. And if, you know, if, if listeners just want to Google that, they, they can find it easily. And what I put in there was a one-page version that has all of the attributes of deliberate practice in one place. And so my, my equivalent of your 
gold method, right? Which, which is, you know, both entirely compatible and sort of contained within this framework I'm articulating, where you have goals and where you're working, you know, optimally getting yourself out of your comfort zone, but not panicking, where it's logical, like there's a self-consistency to what you're doing. It's part of a plan. And that is happening with like a defined time frame and, and knowing where you're going and why. Mm. All of it's in there. And the way, the way I set it up and the way I've been talking about it for the last few years is sort of like a cooking recipe. And so, so bear with me on this analogy for a minute because what, what Anders and, and many other you know, authors along the way were talking about is that there's, there's nothing wrong with practice that is not fully deliberate. It's just maybe not kind of clicking at the highest efficiency it could be. And for me, the the analogy to cooking is interesting because on on this this one pager here, and I'm, I'm going to ask listeners to kind of imagine this as I'm as I'm describing it. You've got these sort of three areas. One of the areas is the steps of the recipe. So if you think about baking, like a lot of people have been doing baking since the pandemic started, right? <laughs> so maybe you want to bake some bread, and so you, you know, you're going to preheat the oven to 350 or 375 or something like that, right? And then a second chunk of stuff here is the ingredients you need. Okay, so flour, salt, water, yeast. The third area is like the skills that you're developing along the way. And this is like kneading bread dough or something, right? Now, as anyone can tell you, like you can cook and you can kind of improvise and you can generate some stuff and it might even be edible. It just might not be the best. So like, if you kind of like, oh, don't totally pay attention to the steps of the recipe and you only you know, preheat to 250, well, then the loaf is going to come out not fully baked. Or if you, you know, forget the yeast, well, you're going to have like unleavened bread and that's not wrong. It's just like not what you were going for. And if you don't know how to knead bread dough, well, then it's not going to be fully, like, the, the gluten's going to be weird and it's just going to be kind of this like weird mass, right? So, in, in this concept of a deliberate practice framework, what's important is to have all of these elements working together and integrated, right? And so just stepping through what some of these elements are then, you know, you've, you've got uh, what's basically in this blog post. I talk about some of these steps where, you know, your practice sessions need to be intentionally designed. This, this is more or less what you're talking about with the L part of your plan, like a logical plan. Um, you have to have specific goals. You need to be working outside your comfort zone, right? That's that's the O part. That's the optimal part of it, if I'm understanding your your framework. Well, so actually, I want to stop on that real quick because I think yeah. it's a mis- that's actually something I believe is a huge misconception, right? Working outside of your comfort zone. What I think a lot of people think that means is it's I should just sound bad. Like, I think it's fine if I sound bad. Now, I don't think it's inherently wrong if we sound bad, but if we're constantly sounding bad, we're not really like ever like getting to like the, like obviously the feedback loop is what drives us towards not sounding bad anymore, right? But I think a lot of people, we, we, we believe, especially when you don't, like for me to sound bad is different than a college freshman to sound bad because I have so yes. much more of my skills ingrained. So I think the stakes are higher, the less ingrained your skills are. You need more of your playing to be at a higher level. So for me, like the optimal starting position just basically means how can I 
how much of the player that I want to be can I be already? Like, how much of that can I can I encapsulate? Where do I have? What speed do I have to play? What exercises do I have to play to have the right kind of airspeed or like the right kind of connection between notes or consistent articulation? What I feel like then the challenge should be for people is not so much necessary. Can I get the right notes or the right rhythms? But can I play perfectly? And that becomes what challenges you and pushes you outside your comfort zone is like, for me, if I slow everything down so technique is no longer a consideration, then the difference between me playing at my highest level and not is focus. Yeah. And that becomes where I challenge myself is can I keep the, can I stay focused on what I'm doing? And then gradually, once I establish that, because I really think, sorry, I'm going off on a rant here, but I love it. That has to happen first. Before you do anything else, in my opinion, what you do, you have to establish like some sort of healthy foundation because if you don't, you don't have anything to fall back on when things get challenging. You're not like, well, what am I trying to do? So we we try to establish those habits first of quality over quantity, so to speak. And then when the quality is high, then we're just challenging ourselves, pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone in a flow type state, right? So it's challenging, but we can achieve it, but focus is the difference. And we can control focus every single time. So it builds that muscle of what really it takes, in my opinion, to not step in a hole in a Metropolitan Opera (laughs) performance is focus. Am I in the game? Is my head in the game? Or is it, I don't know if any of that made sense, but. Man, are you just reading off of my desktop here? I swear you're just like reading right from my notes. Well, I. I You just basically recited like half of this, half of this framework I've got. Because yeah, like one of of the elements of, of the sort of, Recipe ingredients is extraordinary focus and concentration. And this is a big thing that people miss, right? So I think, like for me, this this almost deserves its own sub-theme. Totally. Right? Totally. Because you can you can have some sort of plan or method you're implementing. But if you bring your phone with you into the practice room and it's sitting there like buzzing and dinging and you know. Basically, my, my point to students has always been: unless your phone is on airplane mode, you are not practicing. Not in my book. Mm. You're, you're too distracted. You, you cannot possibly enter the state of like deep focus and concentration needed to even know whether you're like working on this edge of your comfort zone, right? right? right. I, think, I think you brought up something really important, which is that the, the terminology here really matters. Like I, I have spent a number of years now sort of trying to be more consistent myself and then also trying to almost like document the areas in music pedagogy where the imprecision of language is a bit of a problem. Absolutely. And so just to be as clear as possible about what I'm saying, when you are working on anything, the, the language I'm using is that you basically have three regimes of this work. The first regime is comfort. So that's like everything you can do sort of without breaking a sweat. Beyond that is stretching. And then beyond that is panic, right? <laughs> and so what you want to be, and, 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 and it's different for different people right, at right. different times, different instruments, even different times of the day. But like finding that stretching zone is like its own skill, Absolutely. right? And, and you know, the, the, the parallels to athletics are obvious. Like literally, I remember being, you know, a kid in elementary school. And whenever they had those stupid like presidential physical fitness tests, I was like, oh, no. Right. Because it's like one of the things is you had to sit down and like stretch to touch your toes and do all this. And I've just like never been flexible. Like, I don't know, my hamstrings are just dumb and I've never put in the effort to, to change it. And so I would get to this place where I'm like, oh, I can just like barely reach past my kneecaps. Well, 
if I did this in a deliberate fashion, I, I know that I could sit down and find a way to increase my flexibility. Right. And what I would do is by finding that point where it, where it just starts to become tense and going a little bit farther, mm-hmm. but not six inches farther because then I'm going to hurt myself. Right. Yeah. And I think, I guess my point was, it's just almost like a trigger, right? Because I think we have this conception that if we just do, so here's a, here's like a common story I've heard. There's a famous trumpet player. I won't say his name, but I've heard this story so much that this guy he's an incredible soloist, uh, incredible performer can, uh, and the, the stories go that he sat in the practice room and he just did things that he couldn't do. And that's how he developed the ability to do it. And like, I would just, I would just be like, oh, that's so inspiring. I should go into the practice room and do things that I can't do. But that doesn't make any sense if you think about it, because when would he have developed the efficiency and the abilities that he has that are clearly about balance and clearly about like things working optimally together? When would he have developed that if all he was doing was doing things he couldn't do? Like we to be able to poke a hole and that makes the whole thing fall. And it's basically like, I'm sure he was just stretching, right? He was just stretching his abilities by saying, if I don't work on things I can't do, I'll never be able to grow. But if I if I just sound bad in the practice room all the time, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna like ingrain any good habits. So balancing that, I think, is what makes I mean, in the simplest sense, what makes a great practice session is just a balance between those two things. And you, I think, sorry, last thing is I think we have way more control over that than I think people realize. It's so perfectly stated. I'm I'm going to ask you a question here that seems like a total departure, but I promise it's not. Are you a Monty Python fan? I am not applicable. Like... I mean, I watched like 10 years ago, the Holy Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and that's about all the interaction I've had with it. Okay. Did, did you so enjoy So I enjoyed the movie, but I, would, yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't say no, but I wouldn't say yes, because I'm not. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the second question was going to be, have you seen not uh, Holy Grail, but Life of Brian? No. Okay. So Life of Brian has this scene. Brian is like the next door neighbor to Jesus. <laughs> and there's this phenomenal scene in the movie that that I actually show in master classes because I think it like it gets across in a comedic way this basic problem that you just illustrated with this famous trumpet player. And so what's happening is that like the pythons and you know they're different characters, they're there observing the Sermon on the Mount. And so the camera is like in on Jesus Christ himself, and he's like, Blessed are the meek. For this, and it's like it's zooming out and it's zooming out, and you get, you know, you get like a couple hundred feet back in the crowd. And then Terry Jones is dressed up as Brian's mother. And she's like, speak up. I can't hear what you're saying. And finally, somebody's like, what did he say? And I say, I, th- I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> Ble- blessed are the cheesemakers. Ble- okay. All right. Blessed are the cheesemakers. I guess they be- they're blessed now. So let's like write this down. And we're going to go on this whole thing about how like, you know, the cheesemakers are. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I think about this all the time because there's-, there's a ton of stuff in sort of tribal timpani world. Where with the experience I've had now, I, I can pretty I, I can be pretty sure that I can intuit what the legends of yesteryear or two or three generations back were actually saying or actually doing. But the problem is then when it gets filtered down through like that first generation of, of disciples and and then the next gen and, and it can become like overly rigid or codified or um you know exaggerated because that's how these things tend to go. 
And next thing you know, you've got somebody saying like, hey, could, did you hear that one guy? Like he got to be an amazing trumpet soloist just because he went into the practice room and played all the stuff he couldn't play. Right. And then you're like, oh, I guess that's how uh, I got to do things. Yeah. No, that's that's a blessed are the cheesemakers problem. Right. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And I mean, I'm not trying to get into like a little soapbox here, but it's just, again, to me, ultimately, who cares? Like, why does that <laughs> matter? Why is that story a story we tell? Like, who cares, you know? Like, are you saying, like, I feel like we're trying to tell our stories to make yourself feel better about whatever things. And it's like, the answer is just right in front of us. Just learn how to practice better, right? Like, that's the answer right in front of so many of us. And it was, I, I feel like I came to it when I was 30. You know, I was, I was like, basically old, you know, when I realized, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, I don't know how to practice. Like, how do I not know how to practice? And I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. I myself did not take it upon myself to realize that's my job. It's my responsibility to figure it out. Like, no one's just going to give it to me. I have to figure that out. Well, I'm going to make another movie reference here, which is like the original Matrix. Yeah, right? yeah. So when, when Morpheus is like, all right, Neo, you've got two choices, blue pill or red pill, right? For folks who don't remember the movie, the, the blue pill is the one where you basically take it and you just kind of like forget everything and you go back into your comfy little, you know, delusion. And the red pill is the one where it's like, okay, now I'm going to like actually start to kind of confront this uncomfortable situation, but that it's revealing a deeper reality. Yeah. And I swear, like, I think there's just so much in music performance where people just want the blue pill. Yeah. They're like, just, just tell me the thing to do. Just uh, give, give me a box to check. Get, give me, give me a checklist and I'm just going to do it. And I'm going to be, and then I'm going to be good and I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be successful. And it's like, going to be fine. It's like, no, no. The, like the way through this here is the red pill and it's going to be a bit of a struggle and yeah. it might not be simple. In fact, I can guarantee it's not going to be simple. I, <laughs> and, but, but that's the way forward. And I think if I were to just sort of speak freely on my own podcast, I guess I can do whatever do I want. Right. I think you can do whatever you um, want. I think that's because we're very goals oriented. And so we want someone to give us the answer that will get us where we want to go. And not necessarily the goal being, how do I develop my own authority? How do I develop my own personality? How do I develop my own anything, right? And it's because our we don't know that us developing our own thing will, re will realize the goal that we have decided that we wanted. So we'll just give it away to other people and say... I will trust you to do it. And maybe that's great. But once you're out on your own, if you haven't decided what that is for you or you haven't didn't really stop to think about what that was like, then you're like, all right, well, I guess I have to go fly around and pay hundreds of dollars to continue taking lessons with people because I don't <laughs> know what I'm doing. I think it's it's like a reality for a lot of people. I, I've I've had the same feeling about goals and again, how even the word can be thorny. Or, or imprecise, right? Getting back to that idea that there's a lot of like imprecise language that we have in music because, you know, on, on my very one-page summary, it says, yeah, you need to have specific and well-defined goals. What that's alluding to is that in my mind, goals exist on this like continuum that's almost like a Zoom level, right? So one, one of the fun things about my previous science job was I had access to all of these incredibly expensive microscopes. <laughs> Some One of them was called an atomic force microscope, where you could go down and like actually image individual atoms Whoa. and stuff like this. The other one was uh, called a scanning electron microscope. So if you've ever seen those pictures of like, like bug eyes and like stuff like that, where it's like all grayscale and like that's, that's one way you can do it. But the crazy thing about these tools 
is they let you go through these sort of different zoom levels of reality, right? So from, from like, you know, individual atoms to like bigger and bigger, and then you've got like a human hair and not now you're back to like sort of actual reality. But in so doing, you've gone through like 10 different orders of magnitude, which is to say that like, you've got a meter, you've got a millimeter, you've got a micrometer, nanometer. Like, so the reason it's called nanotechnology is because we were working on the nanometer scale, which is one times 10 to the negative nine. <laughs> it's that much smaller than a meter. Can you show me with your and hands how small that is? It's, it's <laughs> small. It's really small. If anyone wants to do this, what you, could, you can go to my website. I, I have sort of the notoriety of creating what I believe still to be the smallest ever portrait of Homer Simpson. And I did this with this atomic force microscope tool at like the nanometer scale. That's awesome. Why does any of this matter? Am I just like riffing here? It matters because for me, this is how I think about goals. You can have extremely focused, extremely targeted specific goals that are like at the nanometer scale. And then you can back up and you're like, well, how, how do these collections of goals that might be like, what am I trying to do tonight in the practice room? How do these relate to my larger scale goals? So like, what, what is my week plan? How does that relate to my six month plan? How does that relate to my two year plan? How does that relate to my five year plan? You know, and as you, as you get zoom back further and further and further, the, the nature of the goals changes. And so too, do I think like the motivation behind them probably needs to change too. And that's where you start to realize like, is the goal there in place to be building your process and, and figuring out like, you know, how you can get better and, and how you can keep pushing your potential? Or is this goal actually, when you zoom out part of this illusory thing where it's like, no, I just got to get a job. Yeah. Can I tell you like basically where I'm at as a human being right now so I can get your thoughts? Please. What I've been thinking about a lot recently, and this does not apply 100% to this because to like win a job in an orchestra, if that's your goal, it kind of has to be your goal, right? I just have been thinking a lot, what if we didn't decide what has to happen with our work? What if we just like did the work that would be moving us forward and we just kind of like let it take us to where we're going. So we're not at all concerned about the result. We're only concerned with maximizing every opportunity in this moment right now to learn as much as we possibly can. Cause then basically it's like the goal is to maximize deliberate practice and like then just letting us, letting it take us wherever we go. I mean, you basically are describing the place I got to by uh, like roughly somewhere somewhere between 2009 and 2010. That is that is the mindset I sort of like organically fell into. And the way it happened was, you know, yes, reading about the deliberate practice methodology from all of the research that was, you know, in these books that were being published, but then also just like reflecting on my own experience, which was working, you know, as as a steadily employed scientist in Chicago. But then also playing a ton, right? Like I, I had finished in civic, but then I was also freelancing all over the place. I was, you know, playing in the Southwest Michigan Symphony and playing in the Illinois Symphony and playing in Madison Symphony. Like, you know, the, this, this, as I'm sure you know, the, the sort of constellation of, of freelance yeah. orchestras around Chicago. And I was having a blast, you know? And like I had... I had a house so I could have this like back room that I renovated that had my timpani there. I had a way to practice every day. 
I, I was doing this. I was basically living the thing you were describing, which was like, I'm focused on my process to be able to do this and like whatever results from this, cool. Now, I was going into these auditions, taking them. It, it wasn't just a lark. Like I really did want to do well with them. But the reason I wanted to do well was because my my goal was not win a job in a major orchestra. My job or my, my goal, what my large scale zoomed out goal was I want to play timpani performing ensembles at the highest possible level. Yeah. Now, that's probably going to happen in one of these jobs. And so, you know, a career change from being scientist and freelancing to doing this other thing, like potentially at the Met, facilitates that larger goal. Yeah. You know, but the the thing is, and, and I say this, you know, some, some people have asked me, so they're like, really, are you, are you serious? But, but I can tell you, like, if it had never worked out for me, if I, you know, look, my, my, my final round vote at the Met was seven to six. <laughs> it's like, I mean, come yeah, on. Right. You got like, you can't proceed in this career with, with anything less than some degree of humility because my God, like it could right. have been easily so different. Right. If that hadn't worked out and if, if nothing had ever worked out, I mean, yeah, like I would have liked to be performing at an ever higher level, you know, playing timpani on ensembles. But the reality was like what I was doing there was pretty cool. Yeah. Like I was getting to work with a lot of great musicians and and conductors and getting to do this and, and I was refining it. And like it wasn't going to be the end of the world if I just kept doing that. And one of the things I was going to point out earlier, I'm glad we kind of came back to this, was, you know, the person that you became couldn't have happened without that process, right? Like if you wouldn't have taken it as seriously, you wouldn't have learned probably a lot of the lessons about yourself. You wouldn't have had to combat some of possibly the limiting beliefs or some of whatever you thought about yourself. And so like that process caused that personal growth, right? And oh, yeah. and so in, in many ways, it's like, regardless of the outcome of the process, you already won. Like you already succeeded. <laughs> like you're a better, you're a better, more focused, more determined person simply by doing it. Now, the cool part is like anybody can do that, right? Like you don't, <laughs> it doesn't have to be reserved for the people who are going to win a job in the Met. It could be reserved for someone who's like 40 years old, uh, like an IT guy who just wants to get a little bit better at the trumpet. You know, that guy can practice deliberately to become the best possible trumpet player that he can or she or whatever. But the, with the idea being, what can I learn about myself in the process of realizing that like I can use this discipline to push those limits? Oh, totally. I think. I mean, I got I to gotta confess something too. Like since the pandemic started, um, one of the things my girlfriend and I did like the day after Lincoln Center shut down, so we ordered a Nintendo Switch. Yeah. Because my brothers had been saying like, oh, come on, man, you got to get on here. We're, we're, we're playing Mario Kart. You can do this online. <laughs> and so we started playing Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, which is like a blast yeah. for anyone who's not been playing it. It's, you know, it's an extension of all the old, great, you know, Super Nintendo N64 kart games. But it, it provides like such a great test bed for this because I love playing it. And I love like being with my friends and my, you know, my, my family and everybody and doing this. And we're also kind of competitive, you know, friendly. So, and, and, and so you can, you know, find YouTube videos of people like really optimizing their racing tactics and, you know, figure out the right car and do this. And, you know, then, then I thought I got like pretty good and was like doing pretty well at this and like, all right, all right, this, this is fun. And then just the other day I realized, oh, wait a minute, when you do the time trials, 
when you're just you're not racing against anybody else but yourself, you can actually go to like the Nintendo online world and look at the current world record holders for these particular tracks, and you can download that little ghost cart mm-hmm. and race against yeah. it. Yeah. And I was, and that was so humbling. Right. Because I, like I was sitting there on a track and I was like, yeah, two minutes, nine seconds. Like, that's pretty good. All right. Like I used to be at like 221, but like I got it down quite a bit. And then I download this world record ghost. And it's like a minute 51. Yeah. And I'm just like, what? This is <laughs> okay. like, and, and like, I, it's, it's, it's almost poignant to me. Cause I can see how, like, if I was somebody who never played this game before, I would look at that and I'd be like, they're cheating. They're absolutely cheating. There's, there's no way you can do that. I think that's the same as when, you know, travelers in, in 2000 BC came across the great pyramid of Giza and they're like, nope, aliens made it yeah. or gods, something. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not possible by humans. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, 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 and it's this experience of like, once you see, when you've experienced how that accumulated work builds, you can start to see how you get to some crazy end result that otherwise looks like magic. Yeah. There's a, actually, I, I have spent, I don't have any problem uh, admitting this. I've spent a lot of my life watching speedrunners because I, I was, yeah. I played video games when I was younger and I don't really have time to do it anymore. But like, you know, if I'm eating lunch or something like that, I'll watch speedrunners. And there's a few really important lessons I've learned. One, they practice like crazy. Oh, yeah. Like it's hours and hours and hours and hours of doing runs. And then they have what are called splits, right? It's a live split where basically they can determine an amount of time. So like in Mario Kart, a split might just be one track, right? And then the next track yeah. and then a track. Or if it's a game like uh, Super Mario World, it might be beating each world as a split. And so they hit mm-hmm. it and then they have their previous splits. They have their best ever splits and it tells them how they're doing compared. So they're basically getting continuous feedback on whether or not they're improving or not. Now there's a, it's happening literally as we speak, there is a, uh, a thing called the big 20 and it is a race of, uh, of people who are playing 20 Nintendo games with certain parameters and the, the run lasts wow. about like three hours and 15 minutes or, or something. And so people have been preparing for it. I was sort of like watching like the beginnings of it just before we got on here. Oh, that's cool. And I was watching one particular streamer. I just happened to catch a stream. I rarely watch a live stream. It's usually on YouTube. And I was catching one streamer. This is so important. He was saying, somebody was asking him like, are you concerned with trying to get the world record for this big 20 race run? And he said, Honestly, not really, because that's outside of my control. It's dependent upon other people and how they right. do. And he said, I would much rather be concerned about trying to do the best that I can do because that's in my control. I was like, here's this dude streaming for 30 Boom. people, giving like like world-class advice on how we should all view all of this. You don't go to an audition thinking about you're going to win. You're going to go to an audition, try to do the be- better than last time in some better sort of measurable time. way. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy to me. So, so this gets back to another really key point because one of the things that feedback lets you do is that I I would record all of my audition rounds. It's easier for me to do this because I've got like a stick case and right. I can like put the recorder in there and like kind of hide it, you know. But like, my God, this information for my overall process was absolutely invaluable. Right. I would do this thing where I would like leave the round. I would have just played and I go back to the green room put my headphones back on because I'm like not one of those guys who's like chatting up everybody and like, eh, buddy. No, I'm just like keeping it to myself. And I immediately write in my little music journal, how do I think it went? 
Like, what is my impression of how the round just went? And at some point, I'm going to listen back to my recording of that right. round. When I first started doing this, it was horrifying <laughs> because, like, I thought I was nailing it. And I listened back to the recording. I was like, oh, my God, no. So, like, these things were divergent, right? But over time, as my perception got better and keener and I was putting in smarter practice, these things started to converge closer and closer and closer until my sort of real-time awareness was maybe not perfectly matching reality, but a whole lot closer. Yeah. And, and what this is, I mean, so, so you know full well, and, and listeners may know this too, this is, this is something called gamification, where you can take processes and kind of break them down into things that can be tracked. And video games are a perfect example of this. They are, they are literally the game. And, and, you know, whether it's a role-playing game where you've got, you know, you're increasing your hit points and your experience and you level up this way and that way and that way, um, we're all kind of doing the same thing. You see this in racing games. It's quantified with time. I think one of the problems has been in music performance, we haven't quite figured out what these gamification factors are. But I would say, you know, you were asking earlier, like, well, where do you start for somebody who's uninitiated with this? Where, you know, where do you begin? I guess the two things I would say is like, if you don't have a practice journal already, get one. If you don't have a dedicated self-recording device, get one and then use them every day. And that will automatically start gamifying this for you because you're going to be getting this kind of feedback you wouldn't have otherwise had. Can I tell you an opinion that I bet you nobody shares that I have started to develop? Please. I think our focus, I think our music first focus is part of the problem. This is going to sound insane, but I think the fact that we are not, we are so focused on music at all costs that we're not allowing people to break down the process of like what's actually happening when they're playing. And I think everybody wants to play. You even acknowledged it earlier. You said, I had all these musical ideas. I just couldn't do them. And yeah. so you had to focus on the process. And there's like a paying attention to a bit of physicality in this. And there's a, a bit of like trying to figure out, are there commonalities between people who do these things at a high level? Like in terms of physical, in terms of the feel of it. Like I've started to play a lot more, not necessarily purely by feel, but letting feel be a determiner if I'm on the right track. And what it has done is it's just made my playing more consistent. And so if I now start to take musical risks, I can make these risks in the confines of what is healthy, like good playing. And it makes it so that these, I can start to like now gamify music. I can say, well, is it more this or that? But I needed a foundation of understanding how to actually play my instrument first. And so I think we're saying play music above all else, nothing else matters. And then like students are like basically like not understanding how to play their instrument. And instead of just taking like a year and saying, we're going to focus on how to play your instrument and that's it. Or two years. And then the next two years of your undergrad is we're going to focus purely on music. Like, I wonder what that progression would do. Are we under the assumption that because somebody doesn't think about music for a while, they will never be able to develop the ability <laughs> to play musically? It's so weird. And I'm really glad you brought this up because th this is something I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of years. I haven't really written anything specifically about it yet. We sort of like brush on it in, in the week-long deliberate practice boot camp, but not, not even really. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share here a theory that I've been cooking up. This is still a little raw, but, but so, so bear with me. It is weird to me that we have 
Like, because what you're describing is this idea that technical excellence and artistic excellence exist on a continuum where they're sort of mutually exclusive or that there's some sort of opposition between them and that you're trying to balance them. When instead, to me, it now seems so obvious that one supports the other, that a technically excellent foundation supports your artistic ability just the same way that you might have great orators from history. You, you think about you know, Martin Luther King saying, I have a dream. You think about, you know, then Senator Obama at the 2004 DNC saying, there's not red America and blue America, there's United States of America. Like, they have awesome ideas. And the ideas are ultimately the most important thing. But unless you have the oratorical capacity, I mean, think, like, I I was saying this thing in my masterclass this summer, like, think about JFK's iconic you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but <laughs> like if he just mumbles the end of it, it's like, uh, dude, what? what? Right. No, I kind of I lost that. Right. And, and so, so often I feel like our problem, like my problem when I was in the mid 2000s and I had what I thought were all these great ideas, I was mumbling them. I was musically mumbling and tripping over my words. I didn't, I didn't have this oratorical capacity. I've been asking myself, where does this come from? Where, where did this arise? Where did this feeling in the arts that somehow these are opposed? And my, my theory basically traces it back to some of the origins of the talent paradigm and specifically how 19th century romanticism elevated this idea of the sort of muse-inspired genius. That like artistry was something that could not be assessed or broken down or 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 talked about even because it was just magic from heaven or something like that right and and the 19th century was all about this this movement in music and literature and poetry sort of reacting to the enlightenment and the scientific revolution being like whoa 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 we're like we're putting numbers on things and we're and Newton's like saying how things fall and like that's great but no 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 let's not forget and and I think there's a lot of aspects of romanticism that were important in terms of emphasizing like, yeah, let's not forget our job is to vibrate air at people and make them feel something. But in going a little too far, we set up this thing where it's like, yes, you can have artistic excellence or technical excellence, but you can't have both. And somehow that got us to this place where, like you said, it's just like music first all the time. And we forget like, wait a minute. No, we need this foundation to be able to communicate. Yeah. I'm reading this book called, um, uh, chop wood, carry water. And in it, it talks about the path to mastery. And it's basically like you go up and then you plateau and then you go up and you plateau and like, you will learn, but you're sort of like somewhere at these levels. And interestingly, I started to wonder what would that look like for music? Like, is it possible to like, let's say someone starts out, like, is it possible for them? Like if we put them on a trajectory of 20 years, right? like for the first two years to just talk about technical excellence and just let that be fine. And then after they've developed a level of technical, let's talk about how to develop their musicality within the confines of what their technical excellence allows. And then when that is like, I don't know, this is just like, I'm literally making up a top of my head. But then we get to a certain <laughs> point where it's like, all right, well, that's not like, we're still not able to 
play like there's more there's more music to be made well then we start talking about a technical accident it's almost as if we were hypothetically sep- now we're not necessarily saying you want to play a musically but letting it be okay that that might not be the main focus of what we're doing at this point in time right at this moment maybe we're just ingraining good habits with the assumption that developing good habits will allow for ease of developing musical ideas, which it feels like the opposite for myself and a lot of people where I have all these ideas, but I can't do them. And it becomes frustrating. This to me relates to, I mean, so I think, I think there's like another side of the same coin you were just describing, which is, uh, it, it relates to something Erickson writes about in his book, Peak. Lots of others have written about this. It's sort of like looking at different stages of commitment you know, and I, I can see where one of the one of the ways that this sort of like more romantic idea of like music first versus like technical things has come about is because the technical stuff isn't fun. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, like I, I always say this to my students. I'm like, look, Brahms is easy to love. Like, it's not hard to enjoy, you know, playing a Shostakovich symphony or something like that. Like, that's that's the easy part. The hard part is figuring out how to do it well. But as, a, as an artifact of our educational system and, you know, all the different ways that people encounter music younger, you know, in, in earlier in their life, there's sort of, you know, it's like we've developed this carrot, you know, which is like, well, let's, let's kind of like tease you into this, like, like, like stoke your love of the thing. Um, but somehow, like, as we're going up on these additional stages of commitment where, you know, yeah, I get it. Like, you're not going to give a four-year-old this entire deliberate practice framework and be like, okay, go. Right. Like, obviously not. But there does seem to be something missing, like, in the advancing stages of commitment where, you know, at some point this is, like, becoming more than just a hobby. And, and you know, it's becoming, like, a real, like, a big part of your life and, like, how you think about process and all of this. But there's not necessarily this, like, countervailing change that says, okay, now that you're more committed – this can't just be about the fun part anymore. Like this has to be about the craft and the craft is tough. Yeah. The craft is technical. You look at, you look at anything in the world again, tennis, chess, neurosurgery, like there is a craft to it and nobody gets to a point of excellence without doing that and without refining it. Yeah. I believe. So then, oh gosh, now we're into this thing. I read we're, we're talking about, we're talking about flow now, right? This idea yeah. of like, how do we take control of the craft and possibly almost make it into a game of like, can right. I do a little bit more than last time? How, and like, what what is required? And I would love your opinion on this as someone who spent like a lot of time with the scientific method and observing data and stuff like that. I think then we have to start defining ways that we can have observable progress within our practice sessions so that we can start to see, am I improving? Am I not improving? Like, if I'm not improving, how do I, like, what's not improving about it? So that way you can go back to the plan that you've made. Everything becomes like a variable to manipulate rather than just like, I'm just going to show up and start playing and see what happens. You're so much more in control of the way you're learning and the way you're approaching it. A hundred percent. And I got to say, I think one of the most important things I did during my time in civic and and again, this was this was almost accidental, and it just came about because I was fortunate to make a group of friends there, where we were all 
you know, similarly inclined toward sort of refining our processes. Yeah, we, we, we were taking auditions, but we were really into the idea of like, how are we practicing and doing this? And at that point, at least in, in the mid 2000s, when you were in Civic, you got access to Symphony Center in Chicago and you could sign out Buntrock Hall. So Buntrock Hall is this like large rehearsal space in Symphony Center, not like on stage where the CSO performs, but, but you know, one of these really, really big rehearsal rooms where even the CSO will sometimes have auditions and, and you know, prelim rounds and stuff like this. And we would sign this out and we would set up the screen and we would play mocks for each other. And, re- and, and this part is critical. We all played different instruments. So I was playing mocks for brass players and wind players. They were playing mocks for me and like another percussionist. And we were starting to like figure out like, oh, here are some of the variables and the factors and the criteria that really matter when it comes down to playing a blind audition. Because if you only ever play for other trumpet players or other timpanists, you get inevitably bogged down in tribal. Well, no, my teacher says you got to use the stick this way. It's like, nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. And you think about like, especially for a timpani audition, who am I auditioning for? There's not going to be any timpanists on that jury. Like by definition. In fact, the only time there was ever a timpanist on the jury was at the Met because we have two timpanists. Mm -hmm. The rest of the time, my job is to be persuasive for brass yeah. players, wind players, it's an interesting and players. perspective. And so we had this. What, what's it's that? an interesting perspective, you know, because I mean, I have something to to ask you about after, but like, yeah, I mean, tuba players are going to be the same thing, but they at least have brass players, you know. I mean, not that other percussionists, right. but it's it. I, I do understand it to be a separate kind of a separate discipline between like a percussion, like the section, the battery, and then the, the timpani players. Like that's why you have a timpanist and then a percussion section. Correct. Oh yeah, totally correct. And. And this, this was one of the, the things that got me fixated on this idea of what is the observable, measurable progress here. I was recording all of these mocks. You know, I was like seeing, first of all, am I executing what I want to be executing? Or am I like falling short, you know, due to like flaws in my preparation? And then once I'm doing that, how's it landing? Do people dig it? And, you know, it's it's not it's not a hundred percent that like the feedback I'm going to get is always you know sometimes we're, we're all human and sometimes we hear things weird and somebody says you know that sounded a little sharp and okay maybe it was actually flat and timpani are strange but that feedback it wasn't it wasn't just gold it was platinum right like I was by the end of my my process I was sort of like waiting virtually everything I was doing to that kind of feedback. And, and measuring my own progress in terms of like, is this working for a, a set of ears that are intelligent and, and, you know, musically experienced, but that don't play timpani? That's, that's my criteria for success. Yeah, how do you determine then your own authority versus everybody else's opinion? Like, yeah. So this, this is funny because during... During my uh, boot camp, I kind of run people through what was my structure for isolating some of, I I call it this like hierarchical relationship of elements of musicianship. And, you know, I think intuitively we understand that things like time and rhythm and intonation, these are fundamentals and and they're objective, right? They're measurable. You, You can quantify them. 
And then other elements of musicianship include things like phrasing and tone and style and energy and sort of confidence and X factor and interpretation and all, all of these other things that, again, these, these are the ideas. This is like, what is Obama saying? What is Kennedy saying? And these are the things that I, that I believe are ultimately, you know, what really wins us the job or like really makes us compelling musicians. But it rests on this foundation of everything below, you know, and and it's more often than not the the, the deficiencies in the stuff below clarity, evenness, totally. playing the notes, time, rhythm, intonation. That's what's getting you caught in prelims, you know. And so I got to this point where I was like getting better at that, and and then I was like, okay, so so I've got the stuff I can measure, but what about this like upper level stuff? The you know the phrasing. How do I make phrasing decisions? So we would go to our like little working group in civic. We got like seven, eight people there in, in Buntrock. And, um, you know, as part of our evening playing mocks, I was like, Hey guys, can I just like workshop some stuff for a while? I want to take this part of, for example, um, Hindemith symphonic metamorphosis. Okay. This is, this is a timpani excerpt that gets played all, you know, it's asked all the time mm-hmm. in, in auditions. And, uh, for anyone that hasn't played it, there, there's, there's the second movement lick where at the end of it, the timpani is playing the following. So it's so F, D, C, A, A, F, D, D, C, D, right? And it's this, this motif that just goes over and over and over and over again. And I was like, okay, I've, I've got a phrasing decision to make here. And this is, this is subjective, right? I, I can do whatever I want, you know? I, I mean, one, one interpretation would just, you don't do any phrasing at all. Just play it like perfectly dynamically flat. Or maybe another phrasing is to do like, uh, like an inverted hairpin. So it's like F D C A A, F D D C D. Okay, that's that's a way I could do it. Or maybe option three is just a hairpin. So F D C A A, F D D C D. Okay. So I workshop this and and I asked you know my my friend says like I'm going to play this three different ways. Tell me which one you like. Option one, two, three. Okay, who liked option one? I was like one hand went up. I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, who liked option two? Another one or two hands went up. Who liked option three? Seven, eight hands go up. I was like, huh. Uh, okay, interesting. Hairpin then. All right. Now, I, I could have just stopped right there and said, you know, my job is to like win votes and persuade people behind a screen. This one clearly seems to do that. Um, and I could have just left it there. But, you know, being a somewhat maniacally inquisitive sciencey type person, I was like, I want to understand this. What's happening here? So I like repeated the experiment with a totally different group of people. Basically, same result. What's funny is now, like since then, so I mean, that was probably 2008 or so. But the last 12 years, I've like repeated this experiment and master classes and things all over the world. Groups of timpanists, groups of flute players, just everything. And it consistently comes back. 80, 85% of the people prefer option three. This was telling me something pretty important about artistry and how you might even start to gamify these elements that seemingly are totally subjective. And I was like, okay, there has got to be a compelling explanation for why people prefer this phrasing so much. And what I contend in all of this now is, you know, trying to wrap up the story Musicality is not random, right? It's not, it's not just whatever you feel. It's not just totally subjective. 
in almost all of these cases where I would do that experiment or I do an experiment with Beethoven 9 or Elgar Enigma variations or any of these other things, I would be able to go to the score or look at the bigger context of the movement or the orchestration or something and find an explanation for like, this is why people tend to prefer this. And my explanation for that Hindemith example is that, well, it's it's this sort of like modal situation, but you still have a pseudo tonic and dominant, right? You're, you're, it's, it's D minor-ish. Mm-hmm. So the A is the dominant, the D is the tonic. You know, there's, there's this, um, you know, phrasing idea throughout most of classical era, certainly going into the romantic, where you sort of like lean into the dominant and you relax into the tonic, right? Tension and release. You, you stress the five. And so if nothing else, like what I was doing was doing that. F, D, C, A, A, F, D, D, C, D, mm-hmm. right? So, so that conforms with this bigger phrasing idea that people tend to just recognize. And, you know, you could almost say that this is like, it's almost like musical pheromones or something, right? Where like, you're not even conscious that this is happening. It's just like, well, I'm kind of attracted to that for some reason that I don't even know, but I kind of like that one. I also think you can look at this a different way, which is that if, if we're talking about communication, that little motif, F, D, C, A, A, F, D, D, C, D, is like a question and an answer, mm-hmm. right? It's like a call and response question and answer. The question is F, D, C, A, A, and the answer is F, D, D, C, D. And if you just think about like linguistics, like throughout the course of this podcast, we've been asking each other questions. What always happens to our voice when we ask a question? Oh, and then we answer it. There's like a rise sure, and fall. Sure, sure, yeah. And, and you start to just get down to like the most basic ideas of musical communication. And I contend you can gamify that stuff. Man, this doesn't happen very often, but I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> I thought that was just like a as, mic drop. It's just fascinating that like, if there's one thing I would say about it is I think that you you would start to see the people who have come up with these kinds of ideas then are people who just don't like take a coincidence and just say, cool, that's good. Like there, there's a desire to know more. It seems like, you know, for me, that's been very true. It's like, I started, I started with a simple, I was auditioning for Chicago Symphony in 2017. And this whole journey yeah. for me started with, I started paying attention to some some similarities between the way, I'm not going to get into all this because I've done it before, but basically power lifters, they have, they, they have an off-season and an, and an on-season or competition season. The off-season is right, purely right. dedicated towards building up weaknesses, right? They're not really, there's no specific, powerlifting is squat, bench, deadlift, that's it, right? And yeah. so you, they're like doing front squats and they're doing rack pulls or they're doing deficit, whatever. They're doing all sorts of things that are to build up various weak points. And then they'll have a period of 12 to 16 weeks right? Leading up to a meet. And the meet is a day where they have to be their strongest. And there's a whole bunch of right. like research and science into what's the best way to go about doing that. And there's certain laws and fundamental principles and progression plans that they're following. So I started to think to myself, what if that, what if that applied to us, right? What if I need to be ready on this particular day? And what if it applied to me? So then I, I, I just said to myself, what if I played more slow repetitions than fast repetitions, so that the bulk of what I did was under tempo. Yeah. And like, I'm going to, like, I'll go as far to say I was draw, I was drawing up some sample spreadsheets about like a uh, possible audition, how many repetitions you do it, how many whatever's, right? And then I averaged everything out. You know, you add up the amount of repetitions and then take it divided by the percentage of a one, of a, the one rep max being like how, whatever performance tempo. 
and it yep. came out to be like 78 or 80. And then I was watching uh, uh, a uh, Joe Rogan interview with a guy named Pavel Tetsulin, who coached like a Russian Olympic weightlifting, I believe, um, team. And he was saying that they, there's a whole bunch of science to back up that the average intensity of a good uh, plan from like start to finish is in around 75%. So I just like, I just like sort of fell into it, right? I wasn't trying to do that. But to me, it is fascinating because that gives us something to like, like base our progression around, right? Even just that sentence. And I don't know. Oh, I was just endlessly curious. I just like kept asking, like, what if there's more behind? Not just like, oh, that's like a cool thought and to leave it. But like, what if there's more layers to peel back? That's what it sounds like you were trying to do too. And you came up with this theory that ended up holding true. The thing I, the reason I went through that whole thing is like anybody can do this. You just have to like keep digging. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I tell you, man, like it was, it was a really interesting experience because again, mid 2000s, like around the time I was in Civic, I was feeling super insecure about all this stuff. I was like, I know I'm not good enough. I, I was just good enough to get into like civic as a sub. I, I want to be going after this, but I don't know how. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe, you know, maybe I should go back to music school. But to do that, I was going to have to like quit my job and like lose my source of, of support and being able to do this for the long haul. And so instead, I started asking around my friends that were in civic and you know who were enrolled at like master's degrees at, at Northwestern or you know DePaul or Roosevelt, you know. And when I asked them, like, okay, so what are you doing in your in your master's degree? They're like, yeah, well, you know, basically, I have to play in school orchestra, but and I'm taking some kind of perfunctory classes. But but the main thing I'm doing is I have a great teacher and I'm practicing my ass off. And I thought, oh, okay, like I guess maybe I don't have to go back to school. I'll just I'll do that. So I'll, what I just need to do is like find good consistent teachers. So I was in this weird position where because I was self sufficient, I was like auditioning teachers, not the other way around. So I would go, you know, get, you know, people would graciously agree and and they we do a sort of trial lesson. And, you know, again, this sounds super arrogant, but like more than anything else, I was sort of like figuring out, is this relationship going to work for me? And in going through that, I would have this sort of like almost litmus test of like a handful of questions I'd be asking or kind of figuring out their process and you know, there's the teachers out there where like they would they would play some cool thing on timpani and like, and they do it. I'm like, wow, that was cool. Like, how did you do that? Or how did you arrive at yeah. that? Like, and and why? And there's the teachers that would say, like, well, you know, because that's that's how it's done. Or like, that's how my teacher did it. Right. Or that's just like what I say. And I was like, okay, cool. All due respect. This is not a relationship that's going to work for me. Yeah. And then I found the teachers that were like, oh, I'm so glad you asked because like the why of this relates to this other thing. And it's how I think about the methodology of my whole, like the way I approach this. And let's now talk about the, you do the sticks this way. And then, but then, and oh, and Beethoven, and it's like this thing in Mahler, you know, to me, that's, that's what it's all about. That's curiosity. And that's, that's what ultimately I think lets people most effectively become their own best teacher. Yeah, I, I, I gosh, I would totally agree. I, I think that curiosity paired with a process, 
So you have the yeah. opportunity to reflect back and say, like, do I still care about the things that I cared about when I started this process? Or am I just going down this path because like that's the path that I'm on? Like being able to check in with yourself and making sure that yep. you like care about those things, I think is those two things combined, curiosity and a process to make sure you're like able to like apply basically what you're learning, like to stop, basically to stop and to like step back and say, like, okay, what have I learned? Like, what does this mean? Right. I think those two things allow you to make a better plan and a better plan and a better plan. And I, I just have come to the understanding that like, it's not a guarantee that you will learn this. It's not a guarantee that like, because you have a, some sort of degree, even if you have incredibly good teachers, like if it's not a priority for you to, to approach, this is essentially like getting all the way back to like why deliberate practice matters. Because if you're going to spend the time, why waste it? Right. Like if you're going to be in the practice room and, and, and there's, it's from a double-sided thing, like, of, like why waste the time you're already going to spend? But if you could get done in three hours and one hour, which you could get done in three hours, like let's erase this idea that number of hours matters, first of all. And second of all, if we can get done in one hour, what we got done in three, then you get two other hours to either go be a person or study <laughs> a score, make phrasing decisions, things yes. that you would do away. Yes. And then, so this, like, and I would love your opinion on this, this, goes to a bigger point of like, what does it mean to work as hard as you can? And I think a lot of people think in terms of like athletics, it's just like you train hard or you train often or two a days, but in music, you can't do that. Like, I just don't think it's necessary to do that. So if it's not time and like actually spent working on your craft and like, what do you think it means to, to do give everything you have to be able to walk away from an audition and say, I did everything I possibly can. That's, I think, the question in a way, which relates back to one of the things we were talking about before. There, there is no perfect, right? There just isn't. I would look, I, I, so I got to the point where I was like looking at an audition list. So for, you know, first of all, we're all dealing with the same linear time, right? I know that sounds stupid to like point out, but this is not, you know, Harry Potter where like Hermione has the time turner right, and she stops right. for everything else. And then she goes off and does a bunch of other stuff. Like we're all dealing with the same amount of time. And, Auditions get posted, right? And, and then it's like, okay, there's the list. So from that day onward, we're all dealing with the same amount of time to go and on a certain day, present the best you can present. And so my goal in all of this was like, I'm not, I'm, it's not going to be perfect. My goal is to take the level of all of this material and raise it as much as I can in the time I have allowed. Yeah. And that's something Simple. totally I under mean, your control. And it's and that is totally under my control. Now, drilling into that a little bit, it's like, well, what what are the most efficient ways to to raise that level? And and one of the you know core propositions of deliberate practice is that it's not about quantity exclusively. Like quantity matters, but what's more important is quality. Totally. Just like you were saying, it is much more important to practice one really solid hour a day than six dumb hours, right? And if if for if for no other reason than again, like you know, I'm I'm a drummer. I can I can put in a lot of hours a day, and I'm not going to hurt myself. Brass players can't do this, right? right? You tr you try to shed for five hours a day, you're going to hurt. That's why your I face. feel like somewhat uniquely qualified to be even asking these questions because like I I don't have all the time <laughs> right. in the day beyond being busy. It's just and so sorry. I was just going to just interject this here. One of the things that really helped me understand this was if you played for 15 minutes a day, and that 15 minutes was the best playing you, you've ever done in your life, 
Like that's just how you would start to play your instrument, right? Like that makes sense yes. to us, right? But it doesn't matter the quantity. There's no magic amount of time that will ingrain good habits. It's what you're doing with that time that would ingrain the habits. And so if the same applies, then you just spend the amount of time you need to work on the things you need to work on, but keeping the quality high. So as soon as the quality starts, you know, ideally we're trying to get 100% return, right? Like 100% return on the efforts we're doing, we're trying to get all of that back and ingrained. Right. And so like right. for me, anything below like 95 is just a waste of my time. Well, I, so I got, I, I get this question a lot, like in, in masterclass settings especially, which is like, like, hold on a second. You were saying that you were like freelancing and auditioning and you were working a full-time engineering job. Like how? How did the hours even add up? Like what the heck? And my answer to that relates specifically to this because, yeah, I didn't have 10 hours a day to be on the drums. But I would argue I shouldn't be doing that. That's not, that's not a good or even efficient way to prepare for this. What I needed was three or four really focused hours a day on my instrument, coupled with another three to four really good hours a day of doing all of the other supporting activities to raise this level as efficiently as I could. Like you were talking about, score study, all of this stuff. But I would, I would go a step further. I was recording all of my lessons. I was also generating transcripts from all of my lessons so that I could keep all of these notes organized and start to kind of thematically group things that I needed to be working on. I was recording all of my mocks, and I was listening back to those and transcribing all of those notes that I was getting from people. So once again, I could have data and look at, like, not just what is my gut feeling of, like, how this excerpt is going, but, like, damned if it's, you know, the last seven times I've played this, everyone said the same thing about my dun da da rhythm in Beethoven 7. So, okay, that's got to be a, a priority of my practicing here. Yeah. Now, when am I doing that? Honestly, I was doing that at work. Because the dirty little secret of tech jobs is that, like, nobody works more than, like, two or three hours a day. Yeah. Like, honest. Again, it, it's about efficiency. Focused hours of work. Yeah. If you want to read more about this, you can check out Cal Newport's Deep Work. There's a, there's a whole discussion of it in there. But so I went to my job, got all my like job job stuff done in the morning, would have like the afternoon to listen to lessons, do all this stuff, and then get home and you know, hit the drums again. Yeah, for me, it's important because I, I have to practice my instrument. I'm a, like a husband, a father. I make right. YouTube videos now. I have this <laughs> podcast I have my own personal development that matters to me, right? Like I'm reading, you know, at least an hour, if not a little bit more per day. I'm, I work out four times a week. I got to make sure that I'm like, you know, it's like basically I have to like think this way and like think about what, you know, so when I'm making a YouTube video, I'm constantly thinking about how I can like possibly get a slightly better each time because I don't want to, I don't want it to, I mean, I'm happy to take four hours or five hours to make one fifth, like five minute video with the idea that I've learned how I'm going to do it in three hours next time. Yes. That, that's the only way so, I will spend five yeah. hours doing it is if I like learn it, this part of that five hours was like learning how I can do it. Like watching part partially like watching other YouTube videos on how to do color correcting faster or how to edit faster so that next time I know how to do that. So I like sort of build in the learning about the thing in the actual doing of the thing. It's learning how to learn. Totally, totally. At the end of the day, deliberate practice is basically learning how yeah. to learn. Take it back to when you're, you're talking about like starting at the Met, right? That first season, it was taking me about 10 days to learn each opera. 
10 solid days of like score study and this and that and everything and like learning my entrances. I mean, that's what it took for me at that point in time. Now I've gotten it down to about three. Yeah. And I would say I'm learning them better. Right. Yeah. That's the whole idea, right? Is it's like you, that's another reason, in my opinion, why deep practice or deliberate practice uh, is so important is because like you don't lose what you learned. Right. And so, like, you're essentially building a better version of you. You're, like, building a house constantly, right? Like, it's not like I have to start over all of the time. It's like, well, maybe it takes me a little bit of time and it's hard here. But that's what the idea that if I do that regularly in one year from now, I'll be much more efficient and it will be more higher quality. I, I get a similar question, which was about, like, when I was doing my, my physics and music double major. And people are like, well, no, but how, you know, you were sacrificing all that music time when you had to go to physics classes. And, and my response to that is basically the same as all the rest of this, which is like, yeah, it might be true that as an undergrad, I was not spending as many raw hours in the practice room as somebody who, you know, was at CIM or Curtis or NEC or something like that. Um, but the, the daunting nature of this, you know, double major forced me to be, you know, it forced me to manage my time better. Yeah. It forced me to be more efficient. And so then I came out of there with this way of practicing that was just inherently more efficient. Yeah, and just hours in the practice room is just wrong for anybody that's still, yeah. it just doesn't, it's just, dumb. it's just like, that's not a measure. <laughs> like that's not a variable that actually matters whatsoever. And I I, I think there are, I've said this maybe, maybe out loud on the podcast, but I just think these ideas that people say, well, for every hour you're not practicing, somebody else is. Like, let's just shame people into spending time in the <laughs> practice room without actually helping them figure out what to do while they're in the practice room. Like, it seems like a much right. better use of our time to help people understand how to maximize the time in there. Well, and, you know, again, thinking back to some of the analogies we were making with, with you know, online, you know, video game racing or, or Major League Baseball or any of these other things, it's like, other fields have had this figured out for, for decades now, yeah. right? Even in my own physics training, like when I compare the way my music classes and my physics classes were going, yeah, my physics classes, we got homework, right? It's like, okay, read this chapter, work through these problem sets. But I also had really good professors who were not just telling us what to do, but also how to do right. it, right? They're like, here's how to think about solving these problems. Here's frankly how you read this like inscrutable physics textbook that like gives you headaches. And it's weird that in music, so much of, you know, performance education is like, here's what to do. Go do this, go do this. But, but very little talk about like, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. High quality, efficiently, effectively, all that stuff. Yeah. So I don't want to keep you for an int intensely lot, lot longer. This has been a fascinating conversation. I just... To wrap it up, I would like for, because you believe what you just said, I would just love your thoughts on how you are trying to be the, the antithesis of what you're talking about. Like, what does it mean for you then to provide the how? We know through like blogs and through your boot camps and yeah. stuff, but just the general philosophy of why you've even started trying to provide that kind of content. Yeah, no, th thanks for asking about that. I mean, it, it, I could answer that in a lot of different ways. I mean, most selfishly, um, it's been a real bright spot for me this summer in an otherwise extremely dark time. You know, like feeling like I have anything to contribute or any way to help. And so 
as as people have gone through these boot camps and like get in touch with me afterwards and say, wow, th- you know, thanks so much. This was a turning point for me or wow, I was like really freaking out about this, but I just realized like I could do this. And I've always, I've always liked, you know, coding. So I just signed up for this software, um, you know, extension class, or I just, you know, went online to start looking into copy editing or, you know, something like this. Right. And, and, and again, realizing that our skills are diverse and we don't have to feel trapped and, and, and it doesn't have to be suffering. You know, that's, that's one big motivator for me. I guess the other is just this feeling that, um, <laughs> I, have, have you watched the, the last three Star Wars movies, seven, eight, nine? I've seen seven, eight, I haven't seen nine. Okay. But you, so eight, the last Jedi, Brian Johnson's movie, right? So you remember the scene in there where Yoda's force ghost shows up to Luke and he's like, you know, Luke did not what I told you, you know, yeah. like that, that whole scene. And they're sitting around the, the burning mm-hmm. tree and like, Yoda just tosses off this like a little bit of, of Jedi wisdom, which I'm like, oh my God, that's like maybe the most important thing anyone said in any of these movies. And he's like, yeah, that the true burden of any Jedi master is that, you know, our students, like we are what they grow beyond. And it's the idea that this is all part of this like much bigger project. And this is obvious in science because in science you're building upon previous generations research and discovering new things and like pushing the boundary. And, and again, there's byproducts that come from that. And, you know, maybe it's an MRI machine or maybe it's, you know, the cure for cancer someday, who knows. Right. But like, it's part of this project and, and you, you contribute what you can while you can. And I think it's the same in the arts. You know, you, you look, you look at what we're doing. It's fascinating to me because the, the Met Opera has this online archive, just like the, the Berlin Field Digital Concert Hall, right? So it's Met Opera On Demand, and they have recordings going back to like the 1920s, wow. you know? And, and so I can, I can find an opera like Aida, something like that, and hear 12 dis- different versions of it from like 1920, 1934, 1942, 1967, you know? And, and the process of being able to make those comparisons also just like puts the lie to this idea that artistic and technical excellence exists like in opposition to each other. When you, when you can hear things like that, you hear this progression where the level of playing has just never been higher. Like you listen to these old recordings and there's great things about them. There's like wonderful interpretations and, and all this other stuff. But like some of the playing, like to our ears now, it sounds pretty janky. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, but, but that's the thing. That was the level back then. And that's that's okay, in the same way that like my 2002 Aspen CD is pretty much garbage, but that was the level back then. And so if I can be a part of that overall project of like raising the level, but also doing so like thoughtfully and and intelligently, so that we can all you know feel less kind of trapped as as musicians and just like more broadly defined humans, I'm I'm pretty cool with that. That's awesome, man. I'm so glad. Uh, I, I'm happy to be whatever part I can and share in your share your story. This is it's so cool to have this opportunity. It's a bit surreal, like I said. For me, it's a bit surreal to have this chance because I read your article and I was like, "This is incredible!" And like you're up there in the Met, you know. And like I'm just, it's so cool to be able to have this opportunity to chat with you. And I'm I'm really thankful you were open and just talking about whatever. Um, thank you for this opportunity, man. 
Absolutely. Likewise. I, I loved it. If somebody is thinking to themselves, Jason sounds like a pretty sweet dude and I need to get a hold of him to tell him that, how would they, what ways can they get a hold of you? Uh, easiest, shortest way is just go to my website, jasonhaheim.com, J-A-S-O-N-H-A-A-H-E-I-M. Um, there's the about page, there's the contact page, all that stuff. I try to return all those emails within a day or two and uh, would love to hear from you. Awesome. Uh, so if you want to talk to Jason, take advantage of that. If you need to get a hold of me, you can find me at that's not spit.com at that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. Um, if you would like to leave a rating and a review on iTunes and tell us what you thought of this episode, that'd be awesome. And do not forget to share it on social media so other people can find it. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>